to episode eight of Screaming Through the Ages, a horror movie history podcast. You can come back every other week to get your bi-weekly dose of horror movie history. I'm your host, as always, coming from Columbus, Ohio, Trey Whetstone. And today we're going to be moving to page four of chapter two, talking about the films of Jean Relin and his career as well. And I wanted to have someone who was a pretty big fan of Jean Relin on, and he so graciously has decided to come back for another episode. I'm joined here by, once again, Dave, Dr. Jacques Becker. How you doing, Dave? I'm doing great, and thank you for having me, sir, uh, especially for this episode. Yes, I am definitely a Jean Relin fan, and I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, absolutely. I'm so glad you could uh, make it and come on and talk about these because you've definitely were the first person I had heard about this from. And then again, when we recorded, you know, a month or two ago right, and yes. talked about it. So and, and kinda... my goal, my goal this time is to try to stay as close to one topic <laughs> as we can. Unlike that last episode, fortunately, we're now we were supposed to start at a certain time and we're 40 minutes later. I think you and I had our most of our uh, outside of the topic conversation yeah, we got um, the tangents off out of the microphone. Way. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we'll try. I've got some pretty uh, I've got a pretty detailed outline here. So we'll see if we can't manage to cool. stay on track. But if we get yes. sidetracked, that's not a big deal. It's a little bit of housekeeping up here at the top of the episode. I just wanted to really quick shout out Amateur Destroyer over on Twitter. She had left a really nice review over there and also over on um, Apple Podcast. And I'm telling you, this is something that, you know, if my podcast was a Blu-ray, I'd probably have that on the cover. So I really appreciate the kind words over there and um, ask you. She is on the horror cast, um, one of the hosts over there. So just please check them out as well. They have an awesome podcast that does a good job of like keeping up with current releases and they're always putting out new episodes. So just really appreciate that. And Really appreciate everyone who has left a review and anyone who's given feedback and given a shout out, including I know on LOTC this last time you guys had talked up the podcast. So I really just appreciate all the support. Absolutely. Um, and I enjoy it. I really do. I, every time I see a new episode, I like move it to the top of my queue. Um, the most recent one I listened to was your hammer horror uh, when you had Matt Rawlings on my good friend, Matt. Pastor Matt from Father and Son Watch Horror Movies, uh, and I thought you guys did a, a great job of uh, of breaking down um, a Hammer Horror throughout, you know, from from the 50s all the way up to the 70s. And I absolutely agree. I think it was Matt who said that you know if they had made Captain Kronos earlier, it would have been a series, you know. And I, I think that it's I agree with that 100. percent I think if Captain Kronos had come earlier in Hammer's I, I guess their filmography, I think we would have gotten at least two, three Captain Kronos movies. And yeah, I would absolutely. have loved to have seen them because that Captain Kronos is such a fun film. Yeah, absolutely. And like I was saying on that episode, I'm a big fan of the kind of experimental stuff they were doing in the 70s. So yep. um, all that Captain Kronos and Twins of Evil and all that stuff. Yeah, I'm a big it really fan is of. a shame. Looking at it now, the stuff they were doing in the 70s is some of the most inventive creative stuff that hammer turned out it really was but by that point they were wearing they were starting to wind down right as far Definitely. as their popularity they just weren't as popular 
in the 70s as they were even in the 60s and 50s, you know, 50s especially, but in the late 50s into the 60s is when they were at the height of their popularity. The stuff they were turning out in the 70s, the late 60s and early 70s, that's when you had, um, you know, you guys talk the devil's ride out right. or the devil rides out. That is probably one of my top five Hammer films. Yeah, I think that but, might be my favorite, too. But so is Captain Kronos. Captain Kronos is up there as well. The later stuff they were turning out when they were sort of winding down and losing the popularity is really when it was getting kind of cool, you know? Right. Uh, for the most part. I don't – I Satanic Rites of Dracula, I didn't like that at all. I, I just didn't like that movie at all. But – a lot of the stuff they were turning out in the late 60s and early 70s is really some of the most inventive stuff they had done. Absolutely. And it's a shame, like you said, they they went out. But uh, yeah. I appreciate you uh, watching that. You're one of the first poor podcasts I got into with the HMP and LOTC. So really Thank appreciate you. you listening to the episodes and enjoying it. Oh, absolutely. And they're great. Every, like I said, every time I see them um, and your one on Barbara Steele was awesome as well. Oh, I you. really enjoyed that. I did. Um, and I think I think you did. Uh, you did her justice. Yeah. Uh, with all the films you covered. Um, and the, and it's funny because a lot of the ones that you were sort of praising are the ones that I enjoyed as well. Yep, absolutely. I try to highlight as much of the underseen stuff as I can on here. So that's my goal. And if people enjoy it, then so be it. <laughs> absolutely. I, I will. I enjoy it. Absolutely. Awesome, Dave. Yep. I appreciate that. Speaking of your podcasting, Dave, you got a new show, Jay of the Dead's new horror movies over there. So I wanted to shout that out a little bit. I listened to episode yes. one, and that was a great episode. It seems like it's going to be a consistently good podcast going forward with that crew you've got well, on there. Well, thank you. Yeah, we we do. We do have uh, an all-star crew in there, um, uh, along with, uh, you know, myself. It's uh, And I'm not putting my – I don't <laughs> want to put myself up there. You know, it's like no, the all-star. But we've got Jay. Um, and it's great to be talking hard with Jay again. And of course, Gilman Joel. Right. Who, uh, Jay and Joel are the two other than Greg Amortis. It's Greg Amortis, uh, Jay of the dead and Gilman Joel are the three podcasters I've known the longest. I'm going back to like 2009, 2010 that I've known these three gentlemen and to get to record on a show with, with the both of them is great. And then of course, Mr. Watson. Yes. Who yes. is so much fun. He's such a great guy. He's so enthusiastic. This is the first time I got to podcast with him, and it's just great. And, of course, Dr. Walking Dead. One of the interesting things about Jay of the Dead's new horror movies is it makes me a listener. I'm, I only am there for probably 35 to 40 percent of the show. Right. The rest of it is recorded when I'm not around. It actually lets me be a co-host and a listener. I get to go back and listen to the podcast for all of the other sections that I wasn't there for. That's you awesome. know, we, we yep. record together. Um, and we just recorded episode two where again, you know, Dr. Walking Dead has his own schedule and, uh, you know, he gives us what he can and we're just thankful for what he's able to give us. But, uh, it was Jay, Joel, Mr. Watson and myself, uh, recording a little bit of episode two, we, co- we recorded maybe about an hour to an hour and a half. That episode is probably going to be close to two and a half to three hours, which means there's a lot of it I, I won't have been there for. Right. And it lets me be a listener. So it's it's great. I get to be part of the podcast and I get to be a listener as well. So it's it's just awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. And like you said, just an all star lineup of hosts there. 
and I really enjoyed it. So hopefully you guys keep putting that one out and that great content you got over there. Yes, absolutely. And and Jay's been um been promoting the hell out of it. Uh, <laughs> and has. I don't want to give it away, but he's actually even gone into um some other areas outside of the online community to promote it. Oh, really? Uh, and I'll let him be able to, you know, to, I'll let him announce that. I don't want to uh, steal his thunder on that one. Yeah. Uh, but he sent something to us just uh, maybe about a week ago that, that was just like, wow, are you kidding? Wow, that's like amazing. <laughs> that's exciting. Uh, as far as what he's going, the lengths he's going to to promote this show. That's exciting. Yep. I hope you guys get a huge audience and that show gets passed around. So thank you. Um, and then the other thing before we can get started here is on my 2021 year in review episode, I was doing a giveaway for anyone who sent me their top 10, top five, top three, whatever of the year. Um, and they were entered in a chance to win a Quiet Place 2 Blu-ray. And unfortunately, well, fortunately for this person, but unfortunately, I just had one entry and I'd read his top 10 on the show. And that was David Fear over on Twitter. So David has won the Quiet Place Part 2 Blu-ray, and I have sent that out to him. So congrats on that, David. Awesome. Congratulations. That's great. Yep. And I know David goes back to, like, the HMP community yes. and stuff, too. Mm -hmm. So, All right. Dave, are you ready to get in and talk some genre Lynn? I absolutely am. Let's do it. Awesome. So to kind of give, like, a background of what um, the setup is for this episode is – I went in and had watched five genre Lynn movies, and we're going to talk about five of them tonight. Four of them I picked, and then I put a poll out on Twitter between The Demoniacs, uh, Lips of Blood, and Night of the Hunted, and Twitter had chosen The Demoniacs, so that's going to be the fifth film for this evening. I'm going to go through, and we'll talk a little bit about Roland's history as we go through and kind of get to the films when we get there, if that sounds good to you, Dave. Yeah, absolutely. Sounds awesome. Good. And um, feel free to just jump in whenever. But at the top, I wanted to say it seems like no matter what you think of the films, usually, and this kind of eludes so many directors, but I think Roland always manages to nail the ending, it seems like. Oh, yeah, and, I think so. Definitely. Yeah. So I think he knows how to close a film. So that's one thing I think we're going to see going through as we talk about these films. I agree. And another thing about Jean Roland that I've always liked, and it's funny because it's one of those things where people aren't quite sure how to take him, I think. But he walks a fine line between exploitation and art house. Right. That's really what I see with his movies. Um, and he doesn't always have the budget to pull off the art house. He, he always can sort of get to the exploitation, I think. Right. I think he manages that all the time. The art house, sometimes it's like he's approaching it, but he's not quite getting there. But yet you see the effort. You see what he's trying to do right. in these films. And you had sent me a list of the movies we're going to be talking about. And, you know, you mentioned the demoniacs um, and the other ones you had mentioned, I think for me personally, are the top five John Roland films. He's known a lot for these sort of lesbian vampire films, right. which he did do quite a few of them. Exactly. As far as I'm concerned, they're not his strongest. No. I think his strongest lies outside of that. Yep. There's interesting things within that. You know, there, there are a few films that I think are sort of interesting within uh, that, that lesbian vampire subgenre. But for me, his best films lie outside of that. 
And yep. those are the ones I think we're going to be uh, sort of touching on tonight. Yeah, and I haven't seen um, those ones yet, so I'm not sure, or I can't kind of back you up on that, but I can probably, okay. I think I can, I agree that the films that I watched seem pretty solid. Yeah, So. yeah, definitely. Um, so let's get into it. Like I said, just stop me, Dave, whenever you hear anything interesting. I don't know how much you know about the background of genre okay. Lynn or yep. anything. So just stop me whenever you have something you want to talk about and we'll get down to our first film here shortly. Okay. So I want to kind of set up genre Lynn's life. Um, he was born on November 3rd of 1938 in Hots de Sienne, France. Um, excuse the pronunciations throughout this episode because I'm yeah. – I'm not going to be on top of that. But. I'm not going to be any better than you, sir. So, yeah, I, I got a few things that I have a book uh, where they have a whole chapter on genre land, and I'm not going to be any better at the pronunciation than you are. So, yeah, <laughs> forgive me as well. Yeah, not my strong point, but his father was an actor and proved to be a huge influence in his love for film. Um, he got his start in films at 16 when he helped write invoices at Les Films de Saturn. He ended up working on a short documentary while he was there and would end up setting up tracking shots and assist the cameraman and check electricity and all that kind of stuff while he was working at that company doing invoices. So that's kind of how he broke in. Then he went into the French military, and during his service, he ended up working in the cinema department as an editor. Um, So, yeah, he would go on to help make two films during his service. That's a very interesting start to a career that you. It, it is that that yeah. he, you know, it's something was um, it was part of just sort of a standard service at the time, right? Uh, in the military, and he took advantage of it. You know, he knew he wanted to be a filmmaker early in his life, and he was able to sort of uh, take advantage of that when he got into the military. Right. Absolutely. He would leave the army in 1958, though, after service was done. And would get out and make his first short film titled The Yellow Lovers. So he gets out of the military and immediately he's trying to make a film, which is great. Like you said, he utilized his time in the military and got his career started and right away starts making films. In 1960, he would attempt to make a feature film. And in 1961, he attempted another short But he had to abandon both due to lack of money. And this would be something that would plague him throughout his career, really. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Even when even when it was established, there were times when financiers would pull out. He'd have to cut down his shooting schedule. So, yeah, that was something that sort of uh, plagued him throughout his career. Yep, absolutely. And we'll see that over and over again, kind of as we go down through this. But in 62, he had a bad experience as the assistant director on the film A Horse for Two, and this really led to him changing his filmmaking style completely and would kind of lead him down the direction he would want to go in his films. Well, he would have control. Yes. He needed to have control. It's almost like, in a way, Kubrick. Right. It was Kubrick's experience with Spartacus where he said, you know what? This is BS. I want to control what I'm going to do. Yep. And that was Jean Roland as well, where Jean Roland said, look, I've got to be the one in control. I've got to be the one calling the shots. And you see that throughout his career. You got to applaud him for that, that he took what he experienced there and was like, no, I can't do it this way. If I'm going to be in right. film, I'm going to do it my way. Right. It's funny because I read that he was not necessarily a fan of the French New Wave. Oh, really? But, but yeah, he, he didn't necessarily love the movies of uh, that time period, you know, th- that were coming out for the French New Wave. But yet he himself 
was embracing the philosophy of the French New Wave, of sort of breaking out and the director, you know, the auteur. Yeah. More more than the screenwriter. For that, that was really what the French New Wave was about in the late fifties and early sixties. Is for a long time in French cinema, it was the screenwriter who was given uh, the power. And the French New Wave was like, no, it's the director. The director is the one who should be who should be looked upon as the auteur of the movie. And even though French, even though Jean Roland did not embrace the French New Wave, he embraced the philosophies of it. Right. You know, where he was the one, he was the autonomous. He was the one who was going to control the movie. Yeah, and that really changed the way uh, films were made all over the world, really. It uh, did, because it influenced um, uh, the uh, Hollywood of the 70s. Yeah. I, I you know, I, what is that? The, uh, the, the documentary Easy Riders Raging Bulls. I think it was Dennis Hopper who mentioned, you know, we weren't going to see Hollywood movies. We were seeing European movies. Right. Including the movies of the French New Wave. No, it makes sense because they're a lot more interesting. Right. But yeah, we still see today the director is the one in control of pretty much everything. Or they're the one that has their have their names out there. Like sometimes we'll recognize screenwriters and other people within the industry, but usually it's the director people are focusing on. And, and it really it's funny because it was really the French New Wave who put that philosophy forward. And and while they were writing, you know, while they were still doing critiques, you had uh, Jean-Luc Godard and Fr- Francois Truffaut were putting that theory forward about the auteur about the director being the and and the ones that they you know and they were looking at hollywood movies at the time they were looking at howard hawks and and alfred hitchcock as the ones saying these are the guys who are the are the real authors of these movies these are the ones who are making these films forget the screenplay it's the director because the director is taking the screenplay and adding his own vision to it Yes. which you got with both Howard Hawks and uh, Alfred Hitchcock. Right. And you see that um, that's really what sort of, um, you know, that's where Truffaut and Godard and Jacques Rivette, a lot of the, uh, the, the, the French uh, new wave directors, that's the direction they went in. And even if Jean Roland was not necessarily part of that, he went the same way right. where the movies were his vision. And what he wanted to accomplish in these films. So you saw that with um, with the movies, with all of them, you know, with all of them, even with him not being part of the new wave and not embracing the new wave. He at least embraced the philosophies of it. Yes. And I don't know, have you heard this story, Dave, about his uh, little detour into Spain? No, I haven't. So he started gaining an interest in politics in, in 1964. He decided it'd be a good idea to go into Spain in order to shoot a documentary about uh, Francisco Franco, and it was going to be called Life in Spain. Oh. Well, they were able to shoot about 30 minutes of it before they were chased by police, <laughs> and they barely managed to get back in, across the border into France without being arrested. Wow. That's dicey right there, going into Franco's Spain and trying to yep. do some guerrilla filmmaking. <laughs> that is really cool. It would, not, it would not be the first sort of dicey period in Jean Roland's career because when it got into the later 60s he had another one uh but you're right yeah that is something else yes yeah I can't I still can't believe that they did that and that's that's pretty gutsy (laughs) I gotta applaud applaud them for that at least absolutely in 60 or uh by 68 I guess uh Roland had his first two what you had alluded to earlier his vampire films and I believe they were 
what was it? The Rape of the Vampire and the Nude Vampire were the Rape first two. Rape of the Vampire and the Nude Vampire. And it's funny because I have a book, um, and I know I've mentioned this to you before. I think before we recorded the last episode, it's called Immoral Tales. Right. Uh, European Sex and Horror Movies, 1956, 1984. And it was uh, at least edited or written by uh, Kethal Towhill and Pete Tomes. I've had this book probably now for about 15, 16 years. Mm-hmm. And there's an entire chapter on Jean Roland. And what's interesting is his very first film, which would allude to uh, Rape of the Vampires, is a black and white movie. I'm just going to sort of read to you from from the opening of this. Yeah, go right ahead. Because it came out in May of 1968. And it said, the lights go down and the opening credits roll. Rape of the Vampires, they announce, a melodrama in two parts. Like all good melodramas, it begins with a story. Two young men and a girl listen while an old man tells them about the four vampire sisters. Listen, listen to me, he intones. His voice is dry, cracked, his accent thick and foreign sounding. Listen and obey. A hand caresses a naked breast. Someone in the cinema laughs out loud. Someone else tells them to shut up. More voices, more comments. Suddenly, the door to the auditorium flies open. Light floods in, drowning the black and white images on the screen. There's a whiff of something acrid, tear gas. From the street outside come loud voices. The sound of an angry crowd. Strange slogans fill the air, half political, half poetical. After tomorrow comes tomorrow, someone shouts. Opium is the religion of the people, another voice responds. Then the noise of police sirens and the clatter of stones deflected off shields. On the screen, the old man is warning the villagers. He has set the vampires free. He has broken the cross and let loose the evil. It was 1968, May 1968, which is when the general strike in France happened. That is when Jean Roland's first film (laughs) premiered. So it premiered with all of this chaos raining down on Paris. Yeah, and it wouldn't be the first time he would have um, an unfortunate situation happening when one of his films was releasing. (laughs) So, right. (laughs) Yeah, that's and I know that first one, at least I think he had shot it as like a short film. Right. And they ended up tacking on some extra footage to make it into a feature. Yes, he did. Yeah. So. Yeah, that's really unfortunate. That's the way his career started. And that's that's a great piece there, Dave. I appreciate you reading that out. Absolutely. Yeah. And there's a great movie that Bertolucci came out with in, 19, in 2003 called The Dreamers. That sort of uh, is set during that time period. And as far as um, what was it Michael Pitt, Louis Garrel and Eva Green. Um, yeah, Eva Green. And it is about it's funny because it's about a love of cinema. Mm-hmm. These are people who love movies, but set in that tumultuous time period of 1968. And it started for cinema lovers early in 68 when, oh, God, what was it? Uh, mm-hmm. There was a documentary about him. It was actually my, oh, God. I'm trying to find out what uh, what his name was. But he was replaced as the head of the French Cinematheque. Okay. And it was a guy. Hold on. I'm on my blog. It is it was my twenty fifth hundred uh, number twenty five hundred review because it was the one that influenced me to undertake Henri Langlois. OK, Henri Langlois. And it was uh, the fa- he was called the Phantom of the Cinematheque uh, was a documentary that came out in 2004 about him. And what it was is he was replaced as the head of the Cinematheque. And a lot of cinema lovers rebelled. Because what Henry Langlois uh, did was he collected films from all around the world and he would show them at the Cinematheque. And it was where Truffaut, Godard, all of the new wave directors learned about cinema. 
and he would show like what it was is he would show like a um he would get a movie from Spain with Farsi subtitles and mm-hmm. show it. Nobody <laughs> knew what the hell was going on. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody could understand it. But Henri Langlois just collected films from around the world. And his idea was every movie deserved to be shown in any form he had. And that was where Truffaut, Godard, all of them learned. You know, they would sit down in the front row and just sort of absorb these movies. Well, because he wasn't following what they thought was the standard, he was replaced as the head of the Cinematheque. So before the May outbreak, before the May Revolution, early in the year in 68, you had another revolution of all of these movie lovers who rebelled against the fact that Emery Langlois was replaced as the head of the Cinematheque. So you have that going on at the same time. As you know, and then a few months later, you get the general rebellion that's going on, the, the sort of the sort of citywide rebellion in Paris. I know Roger Ebert was there when that was happening. Oh, really? A lot of film lovers were in Paris at that time and experiencing that. But that was more of the general strike. Earlier in the year, you had the cinema strike. And it was because of the replacement of Henri Langlois as the head of the Cinematheque. So it's wrong place, wrong time, basically, when he's... Basically, yeah, 68 was just... Basically, what we're saying is that 68 was a crazy year in Paris. Yeah, that's that's incredible, and it really sucks for him to start off that way. That Yeah, exactly. That was the year he released his first film, the black and white uh, Rape of the Vampires. Right, but it wouldn't get any better because he released the nude vampire, and after that came out, I mean, Roland would be in a self-proclaimed financial crisis Yeah, is what he had talked about. Yeah. Yeah. But there's a little bit of a bright spot, at least for a little bit, because luckily he would meet producer Monique Nathan, who uh, threw all of her support behind Roland and all the while doing that, she was shrugging off many of the other new wave directors to support Roland. Oh, that, well, you know what? That's really cool because the new wave directors would get their voices out anyway. Yeah. So I'm glad that that um, at least, you know, Roland was able to find an uh, find a um, an avenue to, yes. to, to get his movies out. So that's awesome. Yep. And before we get into our first film here, he would do a couple more vampire films and it was Shiver the Vampire and then Requiem for a Vampire. Now, have you seen yes. all of these vampire films here, Dave? I, I've you know what? I've seen them uh, some of them years ago. I think Shiver of the Vampires might have been the very first one. I remember putting together a um, an Amazon wish list in the mid to like 2005 sometime. <laughs> and I remember the DVD. I, I sent it out to my family. I said, look, if you're looking for gifts for me in Christmas <laughs> and Shiver of the Vampires was one of the movies that I wanted them to, to oh, get wow. for me. So, yeah, I remember seeing that. It's funny because that was what he became known for are these sort of uh, vampire films but they're not his strongest. No, no, not from what I've heard. And I've heard Shiver the Vampires. Um, a lot of people like that one compared to the other three. Yeah, um, I'm with, I think Lips of Blood has some moments as well. I kind of like Lips of Blood, but yeah, I think Shiver the Vampires is, it might be one of the stronger ones. Definitely. Yep. And, and it's probably been, like you said, forever since you've seen it, but I saw an interesting fact. I think Requiem for Vampire they go 40 minutes without any dialogue in that film. Yeah. It's, so it's when just you talk all about images. The art house, it's all images. Yeah. When you're talking about the art house piece of genre, Lynn, that's definitely, yes. that's definitely it. Absolutely. No doubt about it. That's, that's where he's sort of testing the boundaries, if you will. 
you know, yes. to, to see what he can uh, to see what he can do. Yeah. Um, but in 1973, we get his first departure. And that's the first movie we're going to cover for this evening. And that is The Iron Rose. Now, to set this one up a little bit, Roland decided to produce this film. Um, I think he had lost his backing by that time. But he already thought it was going to be a failure and would end in financial ruin for him. So to try to hedge his bets, he entered into a contract to direct um, hardcore porn films for Impex Films. Right. So he was kind of like he wanted to do it. And I think he probably had faith in it, but he knew it wasn't going to be a commercial success. Um, And indeed, it did receive negative reception upon release. And as a result, Roland was unable to find another backer for some time. But let's go ahead and set up the Iron Rose a little bit, Dave. Um, yep. Yeah, oh, go I ahead. Mean, I have I have a synopsis. If you go right ahead, go okay. right ahead. If you can put one together for this one, then go right ahead. Absolutely. A boy played by a used Questor and a girl, uh, mm-hmm. Francois Pascal, who met each other a day earlier at a wedding reception, go on a date, hoping for some privacy. They head to a local cemetery where the boy finds a crypt. That has been left unlocked. Though reluctant at first, the girl eventually follows him inside and the two make love. Unfortunately, they lose track of time. And when they emerge from the crypt, the sun has gone down and they are completely alone. To make matters worse, the boy has no idea how to get back to the main entrance. As he searches for a way out, the girl, initially terrified, becomes strangely drawn to the cemetery. Wondering aloud if it would be better to ignore the outside world and remain there forever among the dead. Yeah, and the thing with that is that's pretty much all the plot that there is in the, the film. Yeah, once that, you get that to is. A certain point, that's all there is. This entire movie is set inside of the cemetery. Yes. Not That's not true. There is a quick oh, sequence on a beach. A beach, yes. Yes, and that is the beach that Jean Roland visited as a child. When he loved movies and he knew that he wanted to make movies, he was on that beach when he was younger and said, I want to set movies on, you know, I want this to be a setting for my films. And he would return to it time and again. You know, Rape of the Vampires had a large section of it set on that beach. And there's a moment, uh, or at least a small segment in Iron Rose that is set on that same beach. And it has, it's funny because it's a, it's sort of a beautiful locale. It has the cliffs in the back and it's a beautiful beach, but it has these sort of armaments from World War II that are still there. Yes. These posts and these, you know, it's sort of a combination of, of, of nature and just war. Yep. On this yeah. beach, and John Roland fell in love with the beach as a kid, and he would set several movies there. And I, I can't remember if I had seen one, another one in this group with that beach or not. But he returned to it several times. Yeah, he I don't think in, I don't think in every movie, but he returned to it in in quite a you know in in certainly early on in his career he returned to it. Yeah, and it wasn't always used for necessarily. Sometimes it was like a dream type scenario right and i think that might what might have been what it was in the iron rose as well absolutely yes yeah yep so i watched these in chronological order and uh, um kind of filling everybody in i'm watching i watched all five of these for the very first time so these were my very first genre genre lend films and nice i went through them in chronological order and i start the iron rose and it doesn't really have me for the first i don't know 15 20 minutes or so it kind of starts slow and i'm thinking Mm -hmm. 
oh boy, I dedicated myself to doing an episode on this. What did I get myself into? But Dave, I can't, I can't really put my finger on it with the Iron Rose, but there was something about it that just drew me to it as the film oh, kind of unfolded. Yeah. It's something about that cemetery, you know, th- that setting of them not being able to get out of that cemetery. You know, the yeah. young lovers. It's an unusual movie. There's no doubt about it. And it's funny, I'm looking at my review of it here. And it's the Amin Cemetery is where it is. And it's huge. I mean, this is a big cemetery where this movie was shot. There's even a scene where, with a clown who sort of wanders yeah. in. That was actually Jean Roland. Oh, was it really? In that makeup. Yeah, I think I'm pretty sure I, I, that, that was Jean Roland in that makeup uh, as the clown. Yeah, and there's a there's a couple other people that are just kind of like in the background that I thought maybe this was going to play in a lot later on, and they never really did. Especially the clown was just kind of out of nowhere. It yeah, like it was out of nowhere. Way. It just shows up and then disappears. <laughs> yeah, 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 there's definitely that. And it really picked up for me, you know, when they get which it's a weird, weird choice to, you know, have sex in a crypt. Yeah, oh, yeah. I mean, you know, it's like. We're looking for a place that's sort of off the beaten track. I don't know if my first choice would be a cemetery, but it was certainly the first choice of these characters. That's that's where they went. They went down into a crypt. I think they were making love on bones. They were making love on, yes. on, on uh, the actual remains. <laughs> yeah, and and that happens a little later on, too. There's kind of this scene where they're down in this like hole, and it's all very – once there's – failing to find their way and they start kind of losing it they get in this kind of um haze and it's almost like a fever dream for the rest of the film yes that's a great way to put it that's a lot that's what it is for this movie and it's it's a strange film there's no doubt about it even in his filmography for jean roland it's a strange movie but there's some there really is just something engaging about you know where you just you end up you end up sort of you're engaged by it you want to see where it's going to go. Yeah. Um, so that, you know, they kind of get more frustrated as it goes on. And really at that point, we're done with the plot and the imagery is left to kind of take over from there. Right. But I mean, this is this is definitely one where we're going to see with a lot of genre lands movies where he's combining exploitation and art house. Yes. You see that a lot in this film. You know, and it's the the psycho it's psychological horror. You know, there's no doubt about it. And but he does take an art house approach to it. He doesn't always have the budget to pull off the art house, but he always manages to pull off the exploitation. Yes, and I've got in my notes even here definitely art house. <laughs> but yeah, um, um, typically I don't get drawn into these types of stories, Dave, and these types of films. Mm-hmm. Um, and the art house is hit or miss for me. But with this one, like I said, there was just something that kind of drew me in. Me I don't, too. I don't know if there's anything here for like you know some of the people we know that are kind of they want some hardcore horror going on. I don't know. You're if not going to get that in this movie. Yeah. You know, you're not. It may be in spurts but not as a whole. No. And you, get I just, mean, and oh, that's right. what you get with a lot, not all of his movies. We're going to talk about a few today. I think that are definitely more uh, in line with horror, but with this movie, with the iron Rose. Yeah. I'm the same way. It's I love movies. Like I said, I even said in my review, I love movies that offer a unique perspective and the iron Rose does that. It gives you a unique, a unique perspective on horror. 
Yeah, it certainly uh, does. But again, it's psychological horror combined with an art house approach. That's what this is. So if that's not your cup of tea, I can't necessarily recommend <laughs> this film to you. No, it's a very strange film, but yeah. I mean, I mean, really, we're going to get in some strange other strange films. But yeah, this, they, this might not even be the strangest of the ones we're going to be discussing. I would say probably not. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. There's not a whole lot else to say about kind of the plot or anything, but I think the characters kind of just drive this along with their it's more of physical acting than anything else. And it's just you know, taking in the scenery of this beautiful cemetery and yes. And that's the strength of Jean Roland. He can take. And in all of his movies, it's different sets. Sometimes he returns to that beach from his youth, but for the most part it's different set pieces. He finds different areas to set his films and they become almost like a character in the movie. I think the cemetery is as strong in this movie as any of the actors, is even the story. Yes. You know, as they're walking through the cemetery, and you see that consistently through some of his best films. Even yes. in some of his weaker films, he always has that sense of location, you know, where where yep. it becomes so important to his movies. And I picked up, um, I think as I was going through watching these, for several of them, I picked up, you know, this reminds me a little bit of this type of film or and I don't know how long it's been since you watched this, Dave, but I kind of got in a couple of places um, and especially there's like, I think, a dancing scene later on in the film. I got kind of like an Evil Dead vibe every once in a while. Yeah, I can see that. Definitely. You know, um, and this what one was this movie made? 73. Oh, this is way before the Evil Dead. Yeah. Yeah, I, I did see that. Yes, she was dancing. I remember one specific scene where uh, Francois Pascal is dancing through the cemetery, you know, yeah. and that does. You do get that sort of, you know, Sam Raimi slash Evil Dead vibe. Yeah. As she's doing that. There's no doubt about it. Yeah, I just got that a couple of times. I think when the film kind of goes into kind of absurdness a couple of times. Um, that was kind of the vibe I was getting. Yes. And then again, that's just something else. Genre land is very, uh, uh, as we'll see in the other movies we're going to discuss approaching the absurd, uh, is another standard. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, uh, anything else you want to say on this film before we kind of keep trucking along here, Dave? No, I don't think so. I think we, um, we, we've done it justice, but you know, it, again, it's one that. You know, uh, Jean Roland said it was one of the strangest movies he ever made. And I think he's right. You know, yes. uh, again, it was shot in that uh, main cemetery where Jules Verne, author Jules Verne, is laid to rest in that cemetery. Oh, really? Where they shot this movie. And there's not much of a story to it. There really isn't. <laughs> no. Just two people go to a graveyard. They have sex in a crypt. Not even a crypt. It's like it's like a it's, it's like underground like it's underground. Yeah. They're just laying on these bones. <laughs> yeah. Very um, interesting. But, and yeah, it's I'm, not a violent film. No. You know, uh, and aside from a dream sequence on a beach, there's not a lot of nudity or sex. Right. So, you know, it's sort of like approaching exploitation. But yet I really did. I was just a big fan of this. If I were to list my top three genre land films, I would put the iron rose on that list. There's no doubt about it. Oh, okay. Like I said, I liked this one myself. I don't know how much I can recommend it to 
everyone else. I'm the but... same way. I don't know that I can necessarily say, and I think that we're going to find that's a theme throughout a lot of these movies we're going to discuss. Yeah. Uh, how much can we really recommend to the hardcore horror fans? Mm-hmm. Because I think there are some fans out there who would watch the Iron Rose and say, what the hell am I looking at here? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that was me for the first little bit. And just because yeah. I don't think m- much had happened yet at the beginning of the film. Right. It doesn't. But... It takes a little bit of time. And even later on in the movie, there's not a lot happening. No. But yet you're still pulled in. 100%. So, yeah, I, I think if you're into that kind of thing, it's definitely worth a watch. But if not, if you're really looking for that true horror film, maybe maybe pass on this one. <laughs> yeah, I, I and I agree with you. And I think, again, that's the theme we're going to see with a lot of um, genre lands films as yep. that we're going to be discussing tonight. So let's get on to a little bit of a background before we get into the next film. So since he couldn't raise funds we had talked about for like a mainstream film, Roland went back and made two more adult films. After this, though, he was able to get some producers to sign on for The Demoniacs, um, but they insisted on it being very low budget. Right. But unfortunately, his problems wouldn't stop there either. Um, He had to change the film's name due to copyright issues and then ended up in the hospital for two weeks after production wrapped due to um, physical and mental exhaustion. He also cast two inexperienced actresses in the role of like the avenging ghost um after his first choice the uh uh, castle twins i believe ran into scheduling conflicts so for the demoniacs which came out in 74 nothing really went roland's way no it did not no it did not and it's funny because the opening of this movie the very opening says an expressionist film by jean roland yeah that's the first thing you see in this film it says that right before the opening credits play out. Yes. And this is very much a sort of European style surrealism going on in this movie. But yep. there's also nudity and violence. So, oh, again, yeah. this is another movie where he's sort of walking that line between art house and exploitation. Yeah, and you've got that kind of weird opening before you really get into the film where they're kind of introducing like the I guess they're called like the wreckers or whatever. Right. That gang that kind of hangs out on the beaches um, yes. and draws people in. But I guess before we get into it, Dave, did you have a synopsis on this or do you want me to kind of run down? I do. If you want okay. me to give a synopsis, yes, go right I, ahead. I, I had reviewed this one. Yeah, no doubt. It's the late 1700s and a band of pirates, as you said, known as the Records, roam the coast of France, luring ships uh, at sea into rocky terrain. They're murdering the crew and stealing their cargo. The leader of the wreckers is the captain, played by John Rico, a madman who was haunted by the ghosts of his victims. And his second in command is his second in command is uh, Labasco, played by mm-hmm. Willie uh, Brack, who despises taking orders and is waiting patiently for his chance to kill the captain. Paul, played by Paul uh, uh, Biscaglia, is strong yet refuses to choose sides. And to ensure uh, ensure he remains in in favor, aligns himself with both the captain and Bosco. While Tina, played by Joel Corr, a bloodthirsty nymphomaniac and the captain's main squeeze, is the most vicious of the bunch, a psychopath who gets a sexual thrill out of torturing the innocent. One night while on a beach, splitting up the loot from their most recent endeavor, 
The Wreckers encounter a pair of young women, played by Leave Alone and Patricia Her- Hermenier, who, stumbling out of the sea, call for help. Uh, they were passengers on the ship that the Wreckers had just looted. Instead, Labasco and Paul beat and rape the two unfortunate girls, then leave them to die. But they somehow survive and make their way to a nearby island where in the ruins of a cathedral, the girls meet an exorcist played by Ben Zimay, who informs them that a demon played by Militech Zivonier. Oh, God, I'm I'm the butcher (laughs) of his names, I'm sure. Uh, is in prison below. An all-powerful being, the demon can help the girls get their revenge on the captain and his crew, but his assistance is not free of charge, and the young women may be forced to pay the ultimate price for the vengeance they seek. Yes, and what you started off there with those kind of descriptions of the crew, that was the kind of opening I was talking about where we kind of go down the rundown of this crew um, and a little bit about them. Yes. And that was kind of a little weird. And I was like, oh, what is this? But then I had in my notes here that this, in contrast to the Iron Rose, this film starts off with a bang, literally. It um, does. The, the opening moments of it, there's there's the rape of these two women. And, yeah, and it's, it's kind of brutal. It yeah, really I was, is. I was going to say it's very uncomfortable. And it goes on for a little bit. If that's the only that's the only like main flaw I have with this movie is I think some of the stuff goes on for a little too bit too a little bit too long, especially like the sexual violence that's going on. Yes. And that's something you get again with Jean Roland. You know, yes. he just a lot of scenes in all of his movies are drawn out. Yes. But it's just, uh, you know, is it more art house or is it more exploitation? You know, and you get those moments that are sort of drawn out in a lot of his movies. Right. And we get the captain after they've committed this like uh, crime there. Um, I love like these scenes that we get. They're back in this bar and he just starts to see these grisly images of the two girls that they murdered. Um, yeah. And I think they hear that the the ghost of these two girls are back at the shipwreck. And that kind of sets this thing off and what we were going to get for the rest of the film. Yes, you do. You see their ghosts pretty early. You know, it, it's in a pub. Yes. Uh, and the captain is sort of drunk and he's sort of angry. He's in this rage. Uh, and he sees visions of these two girls. Their bodies sort of beaten and bloodied. And it's like they're haunting his mind. But are they haunting his mind or are they actually there? Right. We don't know. Yeah, we're not and, sure. Yeah, but once those so once those girls, there's like you were when you were saying they get to this like I don't know. Is it like some kind of like an oasis where it's forbidden? It's like people are not supposed to go there. Right. That's when you start getting these fantasy and that fantastique that Jean Roland is known for kind of. Yes. And what a cool setting that is. Yes. That's one of probably my favorite setting in any of his movies, even with the cemetery and the Iron Rose. I agree. I love that setting that he came up that he found. Yes. You know, I don't he didn't create this. He found this setting. On those beaches. I loved that. Yeah. And I, you kind of get this feeling of, and here I am going to be referencing something else, but the way he's mixing this fantasy and this horror, you kind of get like a um, del Toro feel almost to this. Yeah. And I love like, you've got like the woman who's dressed up as a clown and you've got, like you said, the exorcist. And then you've got the, um, the black angel or the demon or whatever they call him. And those three characters are just so interesting and the whole cast of characters in this thing is so they're so eccentric and they really make the film they do 
They really do. And like you're saying, I mean, you mentioned about the girl in the clown makeup played by Mireille uh, Dargent. You know, it's funny because after she gets them, she guides them to the exorcist, she sort of tends to their wounds, these two girls. And it's just very, it's bizarre. You just, yes. you know, it's with, again, with Jean Roland, you don't always know what the hell is going on. Right. In these movies. And you're like, what am I watching here? You know what? I, I thought I knew what was happening, but all of a sudden now it's done like a complete 180 and I don't know what's, what's going on here. Exactly. Um, you get that in a lot of his films. Yep. And you do get a little bit, and I love the fantasy elements of this, by the way, but you do get kind of like, uh, it starts off kind of brutal and you get kind of this like second act that goes a little bit slower and is kind of takes a break for the horror. But there's a few scenes um, leading up to the finale, not the finale itself, but that are pretty intense. There's one with some there. I think that involves like a statue mm-hmm. kind of falling. Um, there's one with a shipwreck on fire. There's just these and th- there's one where where this demon gets released. Right. And, that... <laughs> and he passes his power onto the two girls by making oh, he love to them. Yeah, he does. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's the that that's another thing that kind of went on a little long. Like I said, that's the only kind of nitpick I have with this film, really, is just these sex scenes going on way too long. A little yeah. bit. Yeah. Um, you know, he, he was letting his sort of um, uh, by this point, I guess he had worked in adult films. And <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that that's a strange scene, by the way, when they're letting out that beast. Um, yeah, and it's a very no long, drawn-out scene, but yeah. still, there's so much to love here. Yeah, I just don't know yeah. what else to say. There's not a whole lot in the amount, of, like in gore, but there's other violence that happens throughout the you, film. You have sort of a visceral, action-packed first half mm-hmm. with sort of a paranormal feud fin- uh, finale. Yes, you know, and that's kind of what you get. I think you get that with again Jean Roland. He's sort of walking that line yes. you know uh as to again and we're going to say this several times with all the movies there's a art house and exploitation yep these movies just walk right down the center of both of them yep all of his films and you never know from moment to moment which way they're going to lean yes. are they leaning to the art house or are they leaning to the exploitation yeah, and I just want to say the Twitter poll did not steer me wrong here. Like this was definitely I'm sure maybe the other two films have been good, but I really ended up liking the Demoniacs a lot. I did, too. I enjoyed it as well. Um, anything else you kind of want to touch on on this one, Dave? No, I think we covered it all. OK, yeah, I'd be much more eager to recommend this one than um, the Iron Rose to horror fans. But there's still probably going to be some hesitation there. Yeah, I agree. I agree. It, you know, with the both of them, it's just. You know, you, you have to know you have to know what what type of films you you appreciate, yeah. Before you sort of venture into uh, into genre line. Yeah, and I think there's a couple we're going to talk about, and I think you probably could tell which ones I'm I'm talking about that mm-hmm. would appeal to a broader horror audience. Yes, there um, are a couple. Sure. There definitely yeah. are a few. And we'll get into a couple of those for sure. But yeah, Demoniacs, great film. Yep, I'm with you. Okay, so after that he would return kind of back to the vampire genre one more time before um, being forced back to the adult film world. And he wouldn't be able to return to the mainstream for a few years, but that was Lips of Blood, Dave. And you mentioned you liked this one. Uh, Lips of Blood. Yeah, I did. John Roland himself said it was the best script he'd ever written. 
Okay. You know, and, and it was compromised by production issues. Uh, one of the financiers pulled out at the last minute, which meant that the five-week shooting schedule that he had, uh, Roland had initially uh, sort of you know put together had to be cut to three weeks. He had to cut two weeks out of the uh, production schedule. Uh, oh, wow. He still thought that this film turned out pretty good, and I agree with him. You know, you get a lot of those uh, genre land touches sort of throughout the film, but it also builds a mystery that I think was pretty interesting. Yeah, I got to I got to check that one out. I didn't have time with everything else I'm kind of right. doing, but, uh, you know, and these are ones that you really have to sit down and kind of put your full attention on. Yeah. And so, because he didn't have the money, um, he shot some cemetery scenes in this movie as well. Oh, really? But he did them without permits. So he kind of had to shoot them very quickly and then get the hell out of it. <laughs> <laughs> Larry Cohen filmmaking, huh? Yeah, hey, Larry Cohen and, and Ed Wood, you know, a lot of those guys who would just sort of be shooting out in the streets and then hoping the cops weren't around the corner. Yeah. Yeah. And that's maybe easier to do at the cemetery than it is to do in New York City. That's um, true. That's very true. But, yeah, I've got to check that one out. That's on my list for sure, as well as maybe some of those earlier ones, um, since I liked what I've seen so far. Right. Um, and, and and again, like like I said early on, um, even with his vampire films, I just that's what he made more of these vampire movies than any other sort of subgenre. Yes. But yet for me, they just weren't his strongest. So like we mentioned, got lips of blood and Dave seems like he recommends that, but not really a whole lot else. That's in 75. And we don't really get another horror film from him until 78. Um, but boy, do we get one. So the grapes of death, correct? That's oh, the, yeah. Yes. Grapes of death. And this is what I was talking about with much more straightforward kind of horror film. Yeah. Th this is my favorite. This is yeah. probably my favorite oh, really? film. Yeah. No doubt. Awesome. Yeah. I, and this is considered the first French gore film, actually. And it's really a departure from his dreamlike nature of his earlier films. And it kind of leaves behind that fantastic genre a little mm -hmm. bit. Yep. But I think you can agree that this isn't a conventional zombie film either. No, it's not. Because it all uh, revolves around these grapes. Yes. Yes. You know, that that's what what is the it's the catalyst of what's transforming these people or transforming these individuals into, uh, you know, quote unquote zombies. Yes. And um, before we get into it a little bit, uh, Roland claims that this was his first traditional and almost conventional production um, due to its solid funding that he got for it. You know, he went mm -hmm. away for a little while and he came back. He was able to get some good funding. Um, and he also got some helps in the in some help in the effects department from some seasoned Italian effects specialist. And this was his first film to really garner success. And if you're rooting for the guy at this point, which who wouldn't be? Right. Um, that's a big win for him that he gets success and that he would be able to move on to his next mainstream film kind of right away. But before we get on to that, Dave, do you want to set up Grapes of Death? Do you have one for this as well? I do. Okay. Um, <laughs> we follow Elizabeth, played by Marie-Georges Pascal. A young woman traveling by train to the French village of Roublet uh, to meet her fiance. Uh, when the train stops at a nearby station, a man whose face and arms are covered with uh, pus filled legions stumbles aboard and murders Brigitte, uh, Elizabeth's traveling companion. 
In a panic, Elizabeth hops off the train and flees into the French countryside looking for help. Uh, and there's quite a bit of time dedicated to Elizabeth fleeing. Yes. <laughs> in the French countryside, as I, yeah. as I recall. Yes, there um, is. What she finds instead is an entire population infected with a bizarre virus, one that spreads by way of wine tainted with pesticides, causing people to turn violent without a moment's notice. Uh, alone in a strange place, Elizabeth must fend off hundreds of zombie-like creatures as she tries to make her way to Rublé and hopefully safety. I'm just going to say right off the bat that you can tell this is something completely offbeat and unique. Like I was saying, just from the gore effects, which are really gross. Um, yeah, they are. I don't know if they're top of the line. Like he got solid funding in this and he had some help from Italy. I mm-hmm. wouldn't call the effects here top of the line or benchmark setting. I don't think any of his effects you could call top of the line. No. You know, that's just a, he just didn't have he never had the budget for that with a lot of the movies he was making. Yeah. Um, He did yeah. have. Oh, God, who was it? a young effects artist uh, who was a teenager at the time he started working for genre and who did a decent enough job with the gore effects. Yeah. And there's one in particular. There's a scene and I really like this character. That's what's kind of funny to me is I really like the two. Um, there's two, I guess, for a long period of time. It's kind of like the Iron Rose with one woman leaning around another one. Right. Um, and she's blind. The other woman is blind. Mm-hmm. And I really kind of liked both of those characters. And there's a death that kind of happens involved there once they get back to a town. And you can tell that's pretty cheaply done. But it's still yeah. kind of effective. It is. You know, he just never – John Roland, unfortunately, never had the budget. One of the things about him is that, you know, once he started making these movies, he was sort of shunned by uh, the mainstream. Right. So he kind of had to find the money wherever he could exactly. uh, to make his films. And, you know, I think ultimately, even without the budget, even without the budget to pull off the gore effects, one thing he always did, and I mentioned this earlier, was locations. He always yes. found fascinating locations for his movies. Oh, the scenery is gorgeous in this movie. It is. It's absolutely breathtaking in a way. Yeah. As you're watching these and they become part of the movie and it's always a little bit different. He sometimes returns to that same beach, at least briefly in some movies. Um, but yet a lot of the locations in these films are always new there. He doesn't always use the same locations from one film to the next. He's always looking for new locales right. to set his films in. And that becomes as much a character as any of the other people in the film. Absolutely. And this is I believe this is the first time we get to see um, going back to characters for a little bit. We get to see Bridget uh, LaHaye, I believe it is, who's in yes. Fascination as well. Yes. And she is just I have down here that she's kind of like this. It's almost like an uncanny valley situation when Elizabeth, I think, is our main character, first meets mm-hmm. her. And it's like she's there's something that's kind of off about the way she's talking and the she's so like chipper and upbeat and right. it just gives you kind of an eerie feeling. And that continues through her entire part in this movie. I can't remember if this is the one uh, where Bridget LaHaye is completely naked. She's standing out in, um, you know, she's standing outside and she, you know, she doesn't have any clothes on. I think it was in Grapes of Death. I might I, be thinking of another movie. Does but I the think scene it's in involve like two men as well? 
Well, she's in the town. She's just standing like there and she's completely naked. It was shot in temperatures that were so cold. Bridget Lehane had lines to speak. Mm -hmm. She could not speak them. Oh, because it was so cold when they were shooting that scene. She could not talk. Yeah, I can understand that. She had no clothes on. She was completely naked. And I think this is that film. Dave, I think it is. I think I I don't want to get into too much about what's going on, but I think it is um, in this film that she's outside like that. So, yeah. And and she there's that scene. And I remember reading that, um, you know, uh, uh, when I was looking uh, into um, just the the, the trivia of these films, that it was such a cold night that she had been given lines to speak and she just couldn't do it. Yeah, she couldn't bring herself to talk because she was freezing cold, completely naked in, you know, uh, very, I don't want to say sub-zero. I don't know how cold it was, but it was cold enough that (laughs) she was sort of maybe going into shock. She just couldn't talk. And that's the problem with some low budget. Well, you can get that with higher budget films, too, where just you could what actors you can. But it's funny how it seems to really sort of creep in low budget ones even more. For sure. Um and I, Dave, I know, um, I know some people prefer kind of single location settings and that kind of thing. But I'm a huge fan of when characters are kind of moving from place to place. I am we get, too. We get yeah. a couple different settings, and uh, most recently with something like A Quiet Place Part Two, where that differs from the first one. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And you get this apocalypse, to, especially like in this apocalypse type setting that you're getting here. And I love that they're just kind of moving from locale to locale. I love it too. I do because he has an eye for that. Yeah. Jean Roland has an eye for locations. And yeah. you see that in all of his films and in this one especially. This is probably for me his best film. I think Grapes for uh, Grapes of Death is his best movie. Yeah, it's not and I'll get into I'm going to do um I'm going to rank these at the end of the episode to kind of mm-hmm. give you an idea of where I stand. But Grapes of Death is definitely a strong film for me, too. And I have a couple more things down here. It seems like, well, one thing, first of all, is we've said this is kind of like a unique take on zombies. They kind of have their wits about them up until the very end, right? Like, yeah. while they're in the process, they're still talking and they're still processing things. Right. Yeah. They're, not, the very, zo- they're, yeah. Not, they're not a Romero zombie. Yeah. And Roland just kind of has this way of making things seem so um, fantastical or unnatural just in like the slightest little way, because this yeah. is definitely his most mainstream film up until this point. It certainly uh, seems like it. You know, it seems yeah. like this is the one if you're going to recommend a genre land horror uh, film to a horror fan, Grapes of Death would be the at the top of that list for me. Yep. And I think but there's still that little that little piece there. And this is where I'm going to put. It's almost like Fulci-esque, especially when you get into like these waking nightmare type of feelings as they're going yeah, through the town. Yeah, it still crosses. It still has that sort of art house feel to it. Yes. But of all of them, this is the one that I think horror fans can embrace. You know, even with that sort of art house mentality to it, this is the one I think that they can sort of uh, they can watch and say, yeah, OK, now I see what and now I've, I've seen the genre land film that uh appeals to me absolutely yeah and um i think the only other thing i had is i actually recognize the score in this one i thought the the score really highlights the fantastic fantastical nature of this film it does because you don't always see that with a genre land film no a lot of a lot of his scenes play out in silence yeah oh and i guess i since we've talked about nailing the endings 
I love the nihilism of this ending too, Dave. Yeah, I'm not going right. to get into oh, it. Oh yeah, definitely. <laughs> but when we start, and I'm sure some people it'll piss them off, but I'm just sitting there and I'm watching this unfold. I'm like, it's not going to go here, is it? And it did. And I was like, I just had a smile on my face. Yeah, I did too. So, I did too. Uh, I love the way he commits to that ending. I but. did too. So yeah, that's, that's Grapes of Death. Definitely recommend that one if you're looking I, I to do. get into a gateway. Like I said, for me, that's just, uh, for me, that's, uh, as far as horror is concerned, that's the one that I think horror fans would embrace the most. Yes. Although, and we'll, I'll save that for later, but I know okay. uh, quite a few horror fans that kind of flock to a later entry here. Yeah, uh, there is. There yeah. is, no yeah. doubt. And it's one, funny because yeah. it's like a one-two punch. Yes. For Roland in a way. Yep. All right. So we mentioned that he was going to be able to do his next mainstream film right away. Um, yep. And he was going to shoot a film based on a short story by poet uh, Jean Lorraine called Glass of Blood. A Glass of Blood. Sorry. Right. And that would be Fascination from 1979. Yes. Um, now, this would star pretty much the aforementioned uh, Bridget Lahai, Le- Le- um, however you pronounce that. Um, mm-hmm. But leading up, Roland kind of had uh, Roland had issues with the producer who wanted less fantastical elements and more of a straight up kind of sex film. Although Roland said in the end he was happy with the film. So that's okay. that's the important part. Um, but you can kind of see where that influence could seep in as you're watching the film. Yeah, I, there's, there's a scene where Bridget Lahan, I mean, sort of, uh, I guess, uh, inexplicably is swinging a scythe. Yes. While wearing a, a robe that's not really covering herself. No, no. <laughs> and it kind of happens after a scene that's very um, intimate, I guess we'll say. Yeah. And, and it really is like the image from this movie. Yes. You know, yep. that's what you're going to remember is is Bridget LaHaye uh, swinging the side as her robe is open and you basically see her in all of her glory. <laughs> um and really with this one it was expected to be another hit but once again we see Roland wrong place wrong time french distributor ugc canceled the screenings that they promised him uh, and it would lead to yet another failure and yeah. commercially unfortunately unfortunately yeah um, unfortunately and it's funny because he's um he has a lot in common with another director uh from poland who made a lot of his films in france Valerian Boro- uh Oh, yeah. I remember you talking about him when we did the. Overview yes, he, he made he was another one who had made uh, several movies in the 70s that hit a certain niche, you know, and he never wanted to be sort of pigeonholed into that. But he ended up being uh, he made a movie called The Beast, which is a very interesting film, but a very uh, Borowitz never shied away from sexuality, you know, a lot like Roland. Roland exactly. never backed yep. away from sexuality either. And as a result, when producers would throw money at Borowitz, the limited amount of money they would throw at him, they wanted films that were explicit. They wanted mm-hmm. that sexuality in movies. And it seems as if Roland got sort of pigeonholed into that, where he wanted to make more challenging films. Yes. But the producers wanted him to make titillating motion picture you know <laughs> yeah exactly and we can we're gonna get into that dave here but do, mm-hmm. you, do you have a synopsis for this one as well for fascination yeah uh the year is 1905 and mark played by jean-marie lamaire 
a petty thief has just swindled the partners. I swindled his partners out of their share of some gold coins. Uh, looking for a place to hide, Mark stumbles upon a remote mansion that at first glance seems to be abandoned. Once inside, however, he finds two chambermaids, Elizabeth, played by Franca Mai, and Eva, the amazing Bridget LaHaye. I mean, I, for me, she's just gorgeous mm-hmm. in all of his films. I think she's amazing. Who are watching the place for their master, who won't be back for a few days. Uh, knowing full well uh, his angry cohorts are still lurking outside, Mark makes himself at home. You can't shake the feeling that there's something peculiar about his two sort of um, these two companions of his, these two pretty women, uh, who instead of fearing for their lives, are welcoming him with open arms. In fact, when Mark talks of sneaking away when the sun goes down, Eva seduces him in an effort to keep him there longer. What's more, she tells Mark that others will be arriving for a party later in the evening, and he's to be the guest of honor. Mark, whose curiosity has gotten the better of him, decides to stick around, ignoring the pleas of Elizabeth, who, claiming she has fallen in love with him, warns him that if he doesn't leave soon, he'll be in the greatest of danger once the sun goes down. Yeah, and Dave, unfortunately, I'm going to have to come back and say I was a little let down by this one. Um, Okay. And it's not anywhere to the point where I, like, really disliked this film. Mm -hmm. Um, I just felt in about the first 40 minutes of this film, I pretty much the thing that I liked the most were, um, what was it, Elizabeth and Ava? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I really like their characters and their back and forth, but there's a lot of sex in this movie. There's a lot of... um, a lot of nudity, a lot of sex. Yes, and yeah, that doesn't really always is. bother me, but I feel like in this, it's just not as compelling. The rest of the stuff around it's not as compelling as the demoniacs was to me, and where I would be able to like stick around with that one. Now, I there's things I definitely like. I love the ending here. Mm-hmm. I love the scenes with the scythe because that's kind of like in quick succession. There's some stuff that goes on with with that that um, is very cool, and I like a lot of the imagery again. But overall, I think this was my least favorite of the ones I watched out of this crop. So interesting, yeah, because I did enjoy this one. I did, and and you know, you get that um uh that opening scene, the opening credits where even Elizabeth are in white dresses and they're mm-hmm. dancing with each other on a bridge. Mm-hmm. There's a there's a phonograph playing, I think, as yes, that uh, is playing classical music. Yep. And in the very next scene, you get high society women. They visit a slaughterhouse. Yes. Yeah. With the to ox. drink ox's blood. Yep. Which, as we eventually discover, is all the rage uh, among uh, those suffering from anemia. And once Mark makes his way to the mansion, I thought it it sort of goes into full exploitation mode. There are sex scenes, as you mentioned, including a lesbian encounter. Yeah. And a pretty gruesome sequence where Eva, uh, wearing nothing but a black cape, uh, brandishes the scythe and goes after Mark's enemies. It's not necessarily gory. No, that's what I was going to say. It's kind of a step back after Grapes of Death. Yeah, right? it's it's violent, but it's not gory. Yeah. This scene. I don't know. I thought this one had an interesting mystery to it as well. Yeah, you're not saying anything that I really dislike, Dave. Um, yeah. And again, I'm not like completely against this film. I was just kind of a little mm-hmm. let down because this yeah. premise and the what ends up happening, it seems like it should be right in my wheelhouse. That's the kind of thing that I love, the scenario that plays out near the ending of the film. And I do really love the ending. Um, yeah. But there was just something about it that didn't click with me like the rest of these did. 
And I can understand that. I can understand that. I, you know, if, if I were to rec, you know, if I were to list like three genre land films, I would recommend. I don't know that Fascination would be one of those three. I enjoyed it. I liked it for what it was. Again, he manages to take that that uh, setting, that that sort of mansion, and he makes it part of the story. Right. But. I can't disagree with you. If I were to list my top three genre land films, I don't know the fascination would be part of those three. Yeah. I don't have, like I said, I don't have anything against the acting in this film. I think it's no, great. I think um, it's well acted, you know, considering how low budget it was, I think it's well acted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I just don't know that it ultimately goes to the area that some of his uh, other films do. Yeah, and it's a shame because this is like one where um, if you say genre and this is the image that I say I would most associate. And that's such a yes. cool, like, especially like that Blu-ray cover of this film. Just, just, think, just uh, Bridget LaHaye swinging that side. Yeah. Wearing think, a robe that's not concealing very much. Yes. And what's the name of that label, Dave? Is it Redemption? Is that It's the Redemption. Label? Yes. Redemption, which is uh, Kino Lorber. That's yes. one of the, uh, that's yeah. one of their sort of, sub labels i don't know if that's the right way of putting it but they put out it's funny because they put out not only general land but mario bava they have a mario bava yes uh collection as well as a genre land collection yep and i've got several of those and i do actually i have some of the blu-rays and they're they're amazing yeah and actually after i got done through um the watches here i had a i have a few coming my way um nice and whipping the body was one of those that I added in with that oh, selection. Cool. So, which is b- what Baba, right? Yes. Yeah. Awesome. So speaking of, yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. But they were having kind of a sale thing, so I was like, nice. you know what? <laughs> I hate. I it. unfortunately picked them up before the sale was in effect. <laughs> uh, oh, they were like some of those I got for like ten bucks. Oh Jesus! I was twenty four ninety nine. I think the time I picked up all of these things. <laughs> oh, that's okay. Yeah, I I hate to because um, I just had this long list of films I want to buy eventually, and I'm just never right. gonna never gonna get all of them because it's it's just you can only buy a few at a time. But yeah, um, I buy a little too many, as yeah. my wife would definitely <laughs> uh, contend to. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, I mean, we were talking about that earlier. I've got some, you know, blind blind ones that i had picked up and they're not not cheap so right yeah no none of yeah <laughs> if I you mean, can't find something i try to get them early i don't yeah. have the patience of waiting until they drop until a 22.99 drops to 14.99 yeah sometimes i just pick them up a little too early yeah i try to look out for those um arrow sales and yeah and the criterion sales and yeah. all of them yeah because they'll go they're still not that great of a deal but they're still at least half off it's at so. least better yeah. yeah and it's funny because even when criterion drops them amazon drops them as well yes so that's what i like because you go to amazon then you get the free shipping if you're prime it makes them a little bit of a better offer because Criterion oh, yeah. will match the price that uh, I'm sorry, Amazon will match the price that Criterion is offering. Yeah, and I checked that with those Kino ones, and that wasn't the case with those. No, but, unfortunately, it's not. But the um, I have you ever um, I know uh, Joel's talked about Grindhouse Video that used to be in Tampa. I had ordered they had a huge Arrow sale last Easter, and I had picked up several of these Arrow films oh, nice. on deep discount but they had a heck of a time because they were not expecting the volume that they got oh okay and so, I think so took, yeah 
Yeah, and I appreciate I appreciate like it's just like a couple guys doing all of this and they had so many orders and I think I got mine like four weeks late and that's nothing saying against them because I was just right. To get them I, that's just place. that's just supply and demand, you know, yeah. where where they put something out and they maybe they they sort of uh, figured, OK, here's what we're going to get. You know, here's here's the response we're going to get. And they got something much greater. And it's very hard to just turn around and respond to that. Yeah. You know, I think a lot of people out there should just give these labels, you know, a little bit of leeway. If it takes three, four weeks for you to get something, it's there's a reason for it. They're not delaying it on purpose. It's just, you know, they don't expect the response that they're going to get. Yeah, especially this one. Like, like I said, it was like a two-person operation. I was watching. They did update videos kind of every week on this because mm-hmm. I think this was something they'd never experienced before, this kind of volume. Wow. Um, and, they, you know, they had to wait for Arrow to get the product into the store. Yes. And then they had to ship yeah. it out. So, yes. And it's like they can't ship a full order until they have all of the films in it. And so it's, it's, it's almost, you know, it's funny. And, and this is a little bit off topic. It was almost like the first um, uh, Star Trek convention back in the 70s mm-hmm. where the cast was brought together by these guys who wanted to do a convention for star trek <laughs> and they brought the actors in they flew them in and they said look if we get 800 people to show up at our event we'll make our money back and all of the cast said these guys are imbeciles yeah they're not going to get this show is was canceled eight whatever how many years ago it was Nobody remembers it. Nobody cares anymore. Well, they got thousands of people to the point the escalators in the facility they were using stopped working. There was parking had run out. And when the actors, William Shatner, Leonard Nimoy, DeForest Kelly, all of them walked out on stage, Michelle, you know, Nichelle Nichols, all of them. They were blown away by the response of the thousands and thousands of people in the audience. They were expecting a hundred. They got thousands and thousands and it was overwhelming. And from that moment on, there has been a Star Trek convention somewhere in the world every single month. That's incredible. That's an incredible story. Um, Yeah, it really was. It blew me away when I read that because all of the actors thought Star Trek was done. Yeah, it's eight years on. Nobody cares anymore. We've moved on. Right. They didn't realize the fan base they had until that day. Yep. And that's easier to see now. But back then, certainly um, you wouldn't know. You just wouldn't know. Right. You wouldn't know. There's no Internet. There's no nothing. You know, you just show up and you walk out and you see thousands of people cheering you where you were expecting, you know, 50 to 100. And you're kind of like. Whoa. Yeah. Well, you know what, Dave? We made it well over an hour this time before we kind of got down a rabbit hole. Yeah, right. Now we're going. (laughs) Yeah, right. We did. We stayed on topic a lot longer this time than we did the last time. (laughs) Yeah. But no, I I just, uh, I think I started that getting us off topic, but I just wanted to kind of mention that, that that was, that was cool to kind of snag that. Yeah, definitely. Let's see where we were. So we finished up with Fascination. Um, at this point, Roland was sick of having to make X-rated films to just basically stay afloat and right. to keep his dream of making the films that he wanted to make alive. He told his producer that he would do a horror movie for the same budget that he wanted him to do the adult film for, and he would shoot it in nine days. 
And the result was 1980's Night of the Hunted. Ooh. And I think from what I hear, and I haven't seen this one, um, but I hear that this one's kind of got like a cult following. But could you imagine shooting in nine days? That's that's pretty incredible. I and mean, that's almost like Roger Corman. Yeah. And it's for the same budget as an adult film. Like, wow, that's really. Well, yeah. But you got to you really got to admire this guy. Um, oh, yeah, you do. You, his dedication, if nothing else. Yes. Yeah. Yep. But have you seen Nine of the Hunted? I, you know what? I don't know that I have. I haven't reviewed it on the blog. It seemed like when I was looking at kind of some stills and stuff of it, it seemed almost like a crime film, but it, I think it was listed as horror. So who knows? I want to check that it, one out. It's hard to say. It's almost uh, like, you know, with, with Jean Roland, a lot of his movies were just listed as horror. Yeah. You know, it's like when uh, I go back to Magnet releasing the label <laughs> from Magnolia, their yeah. Magnet. Every one of their movies were listed as horror. I think even um, Machete was listed as horror. Oh, no way. No. And it's not it's not a horror <laughs> no. film, but it was just listed as horror because it was horror was what people were looking for and what they yeah. were buying at the time. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, I don't know necessarily that it was horror. Yeah, I don't know. It looked like it was more contemporary, too. So I'd yeah. be interested in seeing that one, but I haven't seen it up to this point. Yeah, I, I'm not sure if I, I'm sure I own it. I think it was one of those, <laughs> again, Redemption Blu-rays. Yeah. I think it was one of them. I just yeah, don't, it is. I, I don't recall it. But to, uh, so we mentioned he's got the low budget here. And to kind of keep those costs down, he worked with porn actors and wanted to give them a place to showcase their legitimate acting talent. And he actually considers this not to be a good film. And this is the one that if he had the chance, he would want to remake. Oh, interesting. So I know we've, you get that with several different directors. I think I had talked about on the Barbara Steele episode, Antonio Margariti, who yes. wanted to remake, um, oh, now is it Castle of Blood? Is that the one that he wanted to remake? It I was. That's know. the one with Edgar Allan Poe as the main character. Yeah. At the beginning. Yes. I think that's an amazing movie. Yeah. I think and, Castle of Blood is really cool. Yeah. Yeah, and he remade it in 69 in color, and it wow. uh, was terrible. He regretted it. Yeah, that, so. unfortunately, that's what happens. Yeah, you know, you, you decide you want to remake it, and you can't recapture the magic. Yep. But yeah, for whatever it's worth, that's what um, Jean Roland thought of that film. Interesting. He was contacted next about stepping in for Jesus or Jess Franco, on Zombie Lake, and yes. Dave, I know you had talked about this one. He was actually preparing to take a vacation. I think the next day he was going to leave, and they called him um, and told him shooting would start the next morning. Uh. And he decided to accept it, but ended up having to direct this thing under a pseudonym due to the contract. I think the film had to have like a Spanish credit. Interesting. And this is post. I don't know what was up with the contract because this is post um, Franco. Uh, not just not just Franco, but uh, Francisco Franco. Right. So um, the handcuffs were kind of off. So I don't know. It must have just been a contractual obligation. Uh, I, I got I, from what I understand. And again, I haven't looked into it. Too, I think it was a just Franco film. Mm -hmm. It just Franco couldn't make. So Jean Roland stepped in. Correct. And it's very much a just Franco film yep. in that it's just not good. <laughs> I'm not a fan of Zombie Lake. I got to be honest with you. Of course, I have it because I'm a completist. I have it as a part of the Jean Roland collection. But for me, it seems like Jean Roland was a director for hire. 
I didn't yeah. really notice. And again, it's been years since I've seen it. I might have to go back and watch it again, Zombie Lake. But I didn't really notice the Jaroland touch in this film. You know, the way he utilized locations as he did in a lot of his movies. I didn't see that in Zombie Lake. So I got the feeling this was just him more as director for hire and stepping in for Jean Franco or Jess Franco. It feels much more like a Jess Franco movie than it does a Jean Roland movie. And that's what I've heard. And but to be honest, though, would you rather step in and do director for hire on this or would you go and do another X-rated film? <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, this is the one you would definitely want to go for. Yeah, because right. a lot, you know, it would definitely reach a wider audience. Yeah, I mean, just setting up the story, like he was going on vacation, they called him to come in the next morning. Right. Like you get that feel that he's just probably shooting whatever's on paper. Um, exactly. He's he's he was just basically shooting. It, it was it was Jean Roland's take of a Jess Franco film. Yep. So I have not seen it, but that's everything I hear about it is that. Not too interested to see that one, but <laughs> no, I would put that if you're if you're going to. That would be at the very bottom of the list yeah. of genre-land films, Zombie Lake, yep. as far as I'm concerned. Now, if you're a Jess Franco fan, I think you would want to check it out a little more because I think it definitely has more Jess Franco elements to it than it is genre-land. Yeah, we'll get, I'll get into that on the next episode, whether I'm a Jess Franco fan or not, because I don't know yet. <laughs> I think we were talking before uh, you we could, recorded. He's made so many movies, and if you watch 50 of them, I still think you might be undecided as to whether yeah. you're a, 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 um, a Jess Franco fan. Because I like I've watched two and I really liked one and I hated the other. So um, right. we'll see if I can get my hands on a couple more before I record that next episode. But mm. yeah. <laughs> All right. So next we've got the finale, the final one of our five films here. Next, uh, Roland would make his most successful film since Grapes of Death. And it's easy to see why this one kind of garnered success, especially it did well in Italy. And I 100% can see that. And I think really, from my perspective, this is Roland's most complete film in my eyes. Mm -hmm. um, and you might disagree, Dave. You might say it's Grapes of Death. Uh, but we're talking about The Living Dead Girl from 1982. Well, it's strong. There's no doubt about it. I mean, you know, when, when you look at it, this movie, more than any of his others, sort of achieved that level of brutality. Mm -hmm. You know, where uh, I think only more than his previous films. Yes. yes. Even The Grapes of Wrath to a degree. Grapes of Wrath for me is always going to be my favorite Sean Roland film. But The Living Dead Girl, the way that it approached the bloodshed, mm -hmm. I think made it what I would consider the most effective quote unquote horror movie. Yes, and that's in why John Roland's filmography. Yeah, and that's why I mentioned earlier that maybe this would be one that I've seen some horror fans really gravitate to. Yeah, which you can say you've seen some horror fans gravitate to it. Still, when I'm looking at John Roland, there's not a whole lot of people that have seen a lot of his films um, right. in our like circles and stuff. But right, yeah. But but um, as far as horror fans, I would say The Grapes of Wrath and definitely The Living Dead Girl. Yes, I think absolutely. the two of uh, Grapes of Wrath, Jesus, Grapes of Death. <laughs> God, I'm going I, back to John Ford in the 40s. Uh, um, Grapes of Death and uh, The Living Dead Girl. And they were back to back, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, well, they had Fascination in between. Oh, Fascination. And yes, I, fascination. Oh, and Night of the Hunted, actually. 
Oh, really? Not at all. Okay, no. Yeah, so we had a, So it was almost like he kind of did that gore film with Grapes of Death and then wanted to ease back into his art house more sensibility. Okay, yes, exactly. And, and, then, then, and then went in. finally with, someone threw money at him. He said, okay, I'm going to make yep. the living dead girl. Yep. Um, do you want to go in? Did, oh, go ahead. I know he did not get, he did not like working with one of the actresses. I don't know if it was the main actress. Oh, really? Because there's two main the actresses, actresses, right? Um, yes. There is the living dead girl, and then there's uh, her love interest, I guess. Yeah, Francois Blanchard. Yeah. I think was the, the sort of supporting actress in this one. And her and Roland just did not get along. Okay. During the making of this film, I mean, she was she found the the whole movie to be exhausting. <laughs> she even collapsed on the set at one point, oh. um, and Roland just lost patience with her. So there was definitely friction between the two of them during the making of this movie. Yeah, that's that's unfortunate when you see that happening. But luckily, I don't think I saw too much of Roland having issues with. No, it didn't make its way into the movie. Yeah, you know that's more behind the scenes. I think it. Yep. You know, what you see in the film, I think, sort of stands on its own and you don't really see that. Yeah. And that happens all the time. Like, you know, Bava and um, Barbara Steele clashed. Yes. They never was it? It, was, it was on it was on uh, Black Sunday where uh, he had he had said, I think you mentioned when you were talking how he had uh, someone had said that Bava was using a film stock that would um, make the actress or whoever appear naked. Yeah. And Barbara still believed it. And <laughs> yeah, he was kind of teasing her. Yeah. Because uh, she was very difficult to work with. I think she admitted that herself. She was kind of a prima donna on that because mm-hmm. it was her first lead and it was. Uh, yeah. But <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I'm getting us back off track. But um, yeah. do you have a synopsis for this one, Dave? Yeah, I do. Looking for an out-of-the-way locale to dump a few barrels of toxic waste, three men, played by Alain Petit, Jean Sherlain, and Jean-Pierre uh, Boiseau, uh, eventually agree that the best place to store it is in the burial chamber situated under the Valmont family estate. Uh, once there, the trio decides to do a little grave robbing as well and break open a casket housing the remains of Catherine Valmont, played by Francois uh, Blanchard, a gorgeous young woman who passed away several years earlier. Just as they do, an earthquake strikes, spilling some of the toxic sludge onto the ground. And as the men will soon learn, this was no ordinary waste. Seconds after it is, it's exposed to the air, Catherine Valmont suddenly springs to life and dispatches the three intruders in grisly fashion. Alive and still unaware of her surroundings, Catherine makes her way back to the Valmont family estate, where a short time later, she meets up with her lifelong friend, Helene, played by uh, Marina uh, Piero. Thrilled to have Catherine back, Helene does what she can to make her, uh, you know, to make uh, Catherine uh, comfortable, but soon realizes the only thing the recently reanimated Catherine needs to survive is human blood. Uh, With Helene's help, Catherine feeds on a steady stream of unsuspecting victims. The question is, how long will the two be able to get away with murder? Yeah, like you're saying there, this is kind of pedal to the metal from the get-go. Yeah. And it's very much, I think this is the film that gets Roland kind of into the times with the gore. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he could stand up to it because it's 82. It's the I don't know if it's the height. It's kind of the maybe middle or the end of that, like Italian um, gore. You had the Italian gore. You had Tom Savini. 
mm-hmm. turning out some great gore effects, you know, yep. with Friday the 13th and The Burning and Maniac and a lot of those movies. Yep. So definitely. Yep. And this is leagues above, and I like the Grapes of Death, but this is leagues above, I think, in the realisticness of the the violence and the gore. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah, but starting off, we've talked a lot about settings, and I really love the design of this, like, chateau that they're in, especially some of the decor. I think there's, like, this very interesting, like, rocking horse, I believe, or something. It's just very interesting location and setup here. And that was his strength. I, I'll say it again. I just think that was Jean Roland's strength is just exploiting the settings that he would choose for each movie. And it's very rarely this. It's I don't know that it's ever the same one in the movies I've seen. He'd always go to a new location yes. and would just really incorporate them into the story. He really would. Yeah. And I I really could tell I was going to like this one from the beginning. Um mm-hmm. There's just something about it. And I love these like flashback sequences they have. And that mixture with like the present day um, mm-hmm. gives a good dynamic. I agree. Yeah, definitely. And I think this is the first movie of his I saw with kind of mixed dialogue. We had French and English dialogue both in this film. Right. Which I think is far superior. And I'm going through, you know, all these European films right now. There's a lot of you can either get the original with subtitles or sometimes a lot of times you can't find those and you have to sit through these terrible English dubs. Right. Um, (laughs) But I prefer this one a lot better to have like you have the American couple and they're speaking English and Mm -hmm. some people around them are speaking English to them. And then you've got French for the rest of the time. Right. Yeah. Um, As long as there are as long as there are decent subtitles. Yes. Yeah. That's all that matters. Yep. Yeah. But uh, around that time, you weren't really getting a whole. A whole lot of, I guess you were getting a lot more dubs for the international market. A lot yes, more cuts you were. And a lot more. You definitely more were. Even, even Mad Max, when it came out, somebody dubbed Mel Gibson's voice to make it less Australian. <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> you got, ridiculous. everybody was dubbing. And what was the one, um, uh, The Long Good Friday, the, um, the British film with Bob Hoskins? I remember Bob Hoskins' voice was dubbed in that movie, and he threatened to sue. He's like, you're going to dub my voice. I'm going to sue you. So they went back to his um, original voice in that movie. Uh, It didn't make a lot of sense. A lot of the dubbing that they were doing in the early 80s, you know, they were afraid. Anybody who had an accent, they wanted to dub them. (laughs) Exactly. Even if they were talking perfect English, they wanted to dub them. Yeah, it happened with Barbara Steele. They didn't like her. Even in some early American films, they didn't like her British accent. What was it? Saturn 3. They dubbed Harvey Keitel. Oh, and it's you know how strange it is to see Harvey Keitel and not not hear Harvey Keitel. Yeah. Yeah. That's a that's a whole conversation in and of itself. But that's (laughs) I don't I've never understood that. Like, just let I didn't either. Even if even with even if he had a New York accent, it's Harvey Keitel, for God's sake. By the time he made Saturn three, how many Scorsese movies? Had he appeared yeah. in Taxi Driver, Mean Streets, all of these films where he was in he was a known commodity. Why would you <laughs> dub his voice? <laughs> oh, that's so ridiculous. And I'm I'm glad we're kind of at the end of those kind of times. But yeah. this lasted for a long time in America. The um that kind of sentiment. That thinking where everyone had to have it everyone had to talk American. Yeah. <laughs> in a movie, regardless of where it was made, everyone yeah. had to talk American. 
or I remember in um, some early in the 90s, for sure, some early um, anime dubs had like, you know, you'd have a character with a Brooklyn accent every time or you'd have a Southern accent. Like, it's just what they perceived. Right. <laughs> whatever, <laughs> whatever distinct American accent you could get. It was very uh, strange. I think on the original poster for um, the road, was it the Road Warrior? They didn't even put Mel Gibson on it because oh, really? nobody knew him. Yeah. Here in the States, because in Mad Max, like I said, they had dubbed over him. Yeah. Uh, in that movie. So they didn't even promote him uh, for the Road Warrior. I mean, that movie is really Mad Max, too. That's what it was yeah, it released is. as in Australia. Here in the States, it's the Road Warrior. Yeah. And that's what I knew it as. Yeah. Well, I could I could see that because I didn't see the original Mad Max until much later on. But I had already I saw seen... the Road Warrior first. Yeah, yeah, I saw The I Road saw, Warrior and I saw Beyond Thunderdome before I saw the original. I didn't see Beyond Thunderdome first. I think I saw Mad Max before I saw Beyond Thunderdome, but be, I saw The Road Warrior first. And you see scenes of Mad Max at the beginning of The Road Warrior. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know where they were. From. You know, I didn't realize there was a movie before it. Yeah. yeah by the absolutely. time I saw The Road Warrior on cable. Yeah. And that's a that's a gruesome film, that first one. Oh, it is. There's no doubt. And. But for me, the Road Warrior is always going to be my favorite. For, there's something about that, the way it opens, um, yeah. that that sort of um, uh, the myth, you know, the narration at the mm-hmm. beginning of the Road Warrior. Yeah, that lifts it to another level for me. You know, it, it lifts it to this almost mythology. Yeah, it does. You know what? I go back and forth anymore, Dave, because Fury Road really hit me pretty hard. Oh, Fury Road was amazing. Yeah. So I go back and forth between the two, but I... You know, it's funny. Quentin Tarantino had talked about Fury Road, how he avoided it for a while. He's like, how can you have a Mad Max movie without Mel Gibson when Mel Gibson is still out there? Yeah. And it took him a while, but then he ended up watching Fury Road like three times in that weekend. Oh, yeah. And being blown away by it. There's just something about George Miller making a movie in that world that it always works. Yeah, and he was coming off like Happy Feet too, or something like that. Right, so. I think he won an Oscar for Happy Feet. <laughs> yeah, and I don't know if we'll ever see um, Furiosa or whatever the sequel is, but I hope we do. I, hope I really we want do. to before because anything happens to George Miller. I don't. Yeah, wanna... because he does a great job in that world every yeah. single time, even with Thunderdome, with the stuff with the kids. You yeah. know, it's a little bit goofy. It is at times with the kids. That time in the '80s, all the sequels at that point were getting kind of like, look at Return of the Jedi at that point. And... Oh yeah, God, those goddamn Ewoks! <laughs> Jesus, God, I, I sat in the theater when the when Return of the Jedi came out, and Return of the Jedi has some amazing moments in it. The space battles are amazing, but that stuff with the Ewoks. I just remember sitting in the theater, and something happens where an Ewok. I guess dies during battle. Uh-huh. And I remember my friend going, Oh, and I'm like, <laughs> I know the scene you're talking about. I'm <laughs> like, screw you, buddy. There's hundreds <laughs> of people dying in space right now. Yeah. One Ewok dying is not the end of the world. Yeah. I don't know. There was just the Ewok part of that movie just didn't quite work for me, but everything else did in yeah. return of the Jedi. Yeah, no, I like return of the Jedi. It was just that, that point in time you got to that, point where they're kind of putting in stuff for the kids and yeah and that was unfortunate because you didn't get that in the first two no. i mean my god empire no. strikes back ended about as dark as as you could get 
Yeah. In that in that universe. Yeah. With I Han guess. Solo and Darth Vader and everyone, that was a dark ending to a movie. And then to go from that to this sort of happy Ewoks, <laughs> cute little let's let's have little teddy bears running around. Oh, yeah. it just it just it, it you know even as a kid I just remember watching it and I did I remember a friend of mine just going oh well, you know when the Ewok died <laughs> and I I just looked at him and I said dude are you serious right now uh, did you uh, did you watch I take it you did not watch the Ewok movie. What was it? Uh, Ewok Adventures? Yeah. <laughs> no, I don't think I did. I, <laughs> I didn't. However, in 1978, I did watch the Star Wars Holiday Special. Oh, no. On TV. I, I remember we went to um, my school, had a church bazaar that night, and I kept saying to my mother, we got to get home. We got to get home. I want to see the Star Wars Christmas Special. I want to see the Star Wars Christmas Special. And I ended up winning. I ended up getting dinosaurs. As toys. I don't know. It was like a grab bag type thing. And I ended up yeah. getting dinosaurs as toys. But I said to my mother, we got to get home. I got to watch the Star Wars special. I want to see the Star Wars special. Ten minutes into that special, I was playing with those dinosaurs. And I wasn't <laughs> even paying attention to the, to the Star Wars special because of how it was just not good. Yeah. It was not good. I mean, everything, you know, George Lucas ended up buying it and, and or ended up burying it in a uh, vault and saying this will never see the light of day again. That was probably a good move. Yeah. Everything you can say about George Lucas for changing the movies, you got to give him credit for burying the Star Wars holiday special. Yep. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's such a touchy subject with those those remasters and retouches and stuff. I don't even want to. Yeah, it that, is. But. <laughs> but as much as he was sort of, you know, the problem was, and I remember watching on a special feature, the technology hadn't caught up with his vision. No. So you you can kind of cut him a little bit of slack for yeah. changing them because it you know, I remember Mark Hamill talking about what George Lucas was saying about the canteen, um, you know, in oh. on, on uh, you know, uh, what was that? Are you talking about in Return of the Jedi or the one in Mos I'm talking about the first one in the Star Mos Wars. one. Yeah, the, right. Mos Eisley. Exactly. How George Lucas had all of these great ideas. And then Mark Hamill says, you show up and there's like a big grasshopper in the corner <laughs> and there's another bug in the corner. You know, he's like, yeah. it was so depressing yeah. that it didn't match what George Lucas was saying in the original, you know, what he had envisioned for Star Wars. So you cut him a little bit of slack because in 1977, the technology hadn't caught up with him yet. No. So when it finally did and he started changing things, you're like, all right, well, yeah, I love the original movie, but OK. Yeah. You know, it just didn't quite. Yeah. OK, I'll cut him a little bit of slack because he wanted these movies to be more than they were when he first made them. Yeah. What was it? I think on the first was it the first Star Wars? He suffered a heart attack. Yeah, I'm not sure, but that I, think I mean, might I have been. I think it might have been the first one where he because he just wasn't getting what he wanted. And, you that. know, he got a lot I, of good I, ideas and he's good at creating universes. He is. He really is. He's good at create. Well, until it got to the prequels. Well, he absolutely argue- <laughs> loved George R. Bings. He loved that character. Yeah, but you could argue <laughs> and there are so many things wrong with the prequels. You could argue the things that he's building around the whole clone wars the whole like even like a darth maul 
there's some cool universe stuff, even yes, if the dialogue's is. bad, there and even is. if there's some bad characters. There definitely <laughs> is. There, there are things in there that show, like, sparks. Yes, yeah. Of brilliance, even if, you know, I mean, and I always go back to the original Star Wars started with a battle in space, and it yeah. pulled me in immediately. When I, oh, yeah. I remember sitting, a seven-year-old sitting in the theater, I loved that opening scene with that oh, battle yeah. on space. Yeah. And then it got to Phantom Menace, and it started with C-SPAN. Oh, with it, with, yeah, with trade embargoes yeah. and all this other nonsense that nobody gave a a, a royal goddamn about, you yeah, know, all Liam Neeson boring and, and Liam, right. It's funny because you have amazing actors in these movies giving the worst performances of their career. Yeah, look at Ewan McGregor. Ewan McGregor, not strong. Samuel L. Jackson isn't strong no. in the prequels. Um. I mean, Christopher Lee's okay. Christopher Lee's okay, yeah. I just don't like Count Dooku. Right, exactly. And who's, oh, God, who's the actress? Um, Oh, God. Natalie Portman? Natalie Portman, yes. Natalie Portman, right after the the prequels, was in Cold Mountain giving a Mm -hmm. tremendous performance. And Natalie Portman's a great actress. She was in The Professional as well. And the professional yeah, as well, yes. The early early on with um with uh, Jean, uh Jean, what is that? Yeah. Jean uh, uh, Renault. Renault, yeah. Renault, yeah, and that's and that's um Luc Besson, you know, yeah. and it's a great movie. And she's even good in that, but she gave a strong performance in Cold Mountain. And oh god, what was that Mike Nichols movie? Closer? Closer? I can't remember what it was, but you know, where she she's a great actress. Nobody gives a good performance in a George Lucas Star Wars movie. No, no. It's just every time you look at it, you're like, really? That's Samuel L. Jackson? That's yeah. Pulp Fiction Samuel L. Jackson <laughs> playing in, in this film? And he's yeah. giving this performance in this movie? Even not too long after, like, Jackie Brown, too. That we, I think oh, he was yeah. He was, he was the glue that held Jackie Brown together, as far as I'm yeah. concerned. I yeah. think he was the strongest performance in Jackie Brown, uh, Samuel yeah. Jackson. Yeah, I mean, Pam and Greer and Robert Forrester are good. Robert but... And Pam Greer and Robert Forrester are great in it. I'm yeah. not going to take anything away from either one of them. I thought both oh, of them were Oh, and De Niro's great. in it too, right? And Robert De Niro. Yes, Robert De Niro is in it playing a very unusual sort of character. Very dumb you know? character. <laughs> yeah, it's a, uh, I thought one of, the, one of the things about Jackie Brown is – is Robert De Niro giving a very sort of un-Robert De Niro performance? Yeah. And Jackie Brown. He's not the Brown. cool guy. He's not the. Yeah, exactly. But Samuel L. Jackson, from start to finish, in Jackie Brown is amazing. I thought. Absolutely. And then you look at him in the prequels, and you're like, really? <laughs> the, you know, George Lucas just didn't give a damn about the performances. It was all the effects. Yep. And there's you know, some good and, effects. But. And there are. There are amazing effects in those films. No doubt about it. But you have Oscar-worthy actors at every level giving what is the worst performance of their career. Yeah. No. And I, and I don't know how we did it. We got late in this podcast before we got way off track. Oh, man. I don't even know where we were now. <laughs> but, no, I agree with everything you're saying there, Dave. But let's... Let's see where I think I let's go. Let's try to get it back. Um, I right. think I had a couple more things to say about the living dead girl. Um, yep. First of all, those fingernail effects of the uh, I think there's a very unique take on like the zombie almost vampire type story. But those fingernails are ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you remember much about that, but the it's been a few years since I've seen this movie. That's kind of the implement that our um, 
the living dead girl uses in this. So she's got these okay. long fingernails because, you know, she just rose from the grave. And right. uh, that's still <laughs> some of that bizarre uh, genre lens stuff in there. And I'm trying to think. I think it, it differs a little. You know, we have very little, just like when Grapes of Death, we have very little nudity um, and mm-hmm. her sexual content and what we do kind of makes sense in the grand scheme of things. And then I think the last thing I really have here is just that there's an inner turmoil between um, Catherine and Hel- uh, Helene. And as they're going through, it's like Catherine is like, should I even exist in this kind of turmoil? And I think that's a really unique, cool perspective. He's just not making a gore film here. He's still having some of that good subtext in there. Exactly. He's still sort of um, giving you that art house mentality. Yep. Within the confines of a quote unquote zombie film, you know, he's giving you that context. Absolutely. And uh, again, just another perfect ending. I love the when, you know, the ending happens and what happens there. I think the um, the funny thing is, is and again, I don't know um, how much you remember, Dave, but the end of this is kind of this very much like a full on sensory, like violence stuff. But it's almost sensual in a way. It and, is. <laughs> and the Benoit. Lestang was the special effects artist who was creating the gore effects. He was 17. Oh, man. <laughs> on this movie. And it's like his first, I think it was his first film. And they look surprisingly good. Oh, they look For really this 17 year old, you know, yes. creating his first effects for this movie. Yep. Again, you know, a lot of the um, uh, Living Dead films at the time, you know, uh, the zombies would use their uh, teeth. Mm hmm. But in this one, she relies on her finger. Like you're saying, her fingernails. Yep. To get the job done. You know, yep. it's not the teeth. It's the fingernails in this one. Yep. And it's really amazing that this guy was 17. I think later in life, he ended up committing suicide. Uh, I, and Ben Wallenstein is no longer with us. And I want to look him up to see exactly uh, when that happened. That's, un- um, that's really unfortunate. I hate, it is. hate to hear it's that. It's very unfortunate because he was very talented. Yeah, in 2008, at age 43, I think he died by suicide. And I had a feeling you were going to – as soon as you started in that, I was like, oh, no, don't tell me this guy committed, committed suicide. He stuff. did. Unfortunately, he did. Yeah. He worked on Martyrs. Oh, wow. He did makeup effects for Martyrs in 2008, the very year he died. You know, wow. that Martyrs came out in 2008. I don't know that it was shot in 2008. So he was in on that French extreme period. He was much. for a little bit. He was in on that as well. And I don't know, was this his first film? He did short, short. He did the City of Lost Children. He did some effects for that one for the makeup department. I want to look at special effects. I think this might have been his first film. Yeah, 17 years old. When he, Yeah, The Living Dead Girl in 82. He did the special effects for that. I think this was his first credit. Well, you couldn't tell. You no, really couldn't. because he did such a good job. Yep. He really did a great job. Um, anything else you have on Living Dead Girl? Uh, no, I don't think so. I think we covered it all. Okay, awesome. Yeah, got a little sidetracked there, but we came, we brought it back. So We did. Yeah, <laughs> we came back eventually. Much more than we did in the, the first time you and I talked. <laughs> yeah, well, I knew I knew I had like a pretty good outline with like the history intertwined with us talking about the film. So I thought we'd Ooh. keep pretty much on track. But, you know, awesome. you can never account for Dave, Dr. Shockbecker. Right. Uh, yeah, that's that's hey, that's the way I roll every now and again. I'm just I'm just going to go on a tangent and uh, I apologize. But oh, no, uh, that's fine with me. You, you were able to reel it back in. 
Yep. I just enjoyed <laughs> talking film with you because awesome. any variety. So, um, and, and yeah. So same way. Thank you. Oh, awesome. I appreciate that, Dave. But yeah, so I, I would definitely recommend Living Dead Girl. Like you said, Grapes of Death, Living Dead Girl to most horror fans would appeal to them. Yeah, I agree. I think yep. definitely uh, Grapes of Grapes of Death and the Living Dead Girl. Those are the two. If you're if if you're going to check out John Roland, those are the two I think you want to check out because you're going to get the art house mentality, but a little bit more leaning toward the horror in both of those. And then the last thing to kind of bring this background, put a bow on it. Um, Roland continued to work throughout the 90s, but albeit a little more sporadically, he would work nearly up until his death, receiving his last credit as a director in 2009. Um, And then after a long battle with cancer, he would pass away on December 15th of 2010. I think he lived a long, good life. He definitely made some good art. Did you see Did you happen to see any of his like 90s or later films? I didn't. I have to be honest. I think the latest I've seen was might have been The Living Dead Girl. Okay. Yeah, and I took a look. Not too much really um, enticed me or kind of stood out after Living Dead Girl. So Yeah, you know, when it, when it gets into the adult films, it's just sort of I, – I know that a few directors – Ed Wood ended up making adult films toward the end of his career, and they just don't appeal to me. You know, there's just uh, – they just don't quite – I'm not interested. Yep. You know, to see them uh, sort of, uh, I don't want to say descend. I just don't want to see that output from um, from even someone like Ed Wood. You know, I don't, no, I don't necessarily want to see that level. I don't want to see that sort of film from them and definitely from Jean Roland. Because yep. this is a guy who I thought with limited budget. I mean, this guy always had money taken away from him when he was making these movies. And yet he still managed to turn out something that... Would be, you know, a quote unquote auteur. I mean, yes. when you go back to the French New Wave, this guy had a style to his films he that did. I thought shone, uh, it shined through in every single one of them. Absolutely. And it's just like you're saying, like, to an extent, you don't want to kind of tarnish the reputation or the vision like you have, of yeah. them, like something like, you know, I almost made the mistake of seeing Argento's Dracula. So <laughs> I did. And I haven't seen it. I just groaned because of, of what I've heard about it. I haven't yeah. seen that movie, so I can't speak from experience. Oh, I was excited about that. And I just was like, no, at the last minute, I was like, no, maybe not. I just um, know a lot of Argento's later films. You know, yeah. I don't know what happened. You know, it's almost as if I sort of equate it to like when you look at like Mel Brooks's later films. Mel Brooks is a filmmaker that when I was a, when I was younger, I loved Mel Brooks's movies. I mm-hmm. saw even History of the World was the first Mel Brooks movie I think I ever saw in the theater. My mm-hmm. father took my brother and I in 1981. I would have been 10. Was I 11? No, I would have been. I was born in 69. It came out in 81, maybe 11. My brother was nine when we saw History of the World Part One on the big screen. Mm-hmm. And from that moment on, I fell in love with Mel Brooks and I loved his movies. But his later films and Spaceballs is a is I enjoy it. I love yes, Spaceballs. I, do too. I really do. But you start to see where he's slipping a little mm-hmm. in Spaceballs. Then when it gets to Robin Hood Men in Tights, he slips <laughs> a little more. I remember renting uh, that from Blockbuster. I remember going up and renting Robin Hood Men in Tights from uh, from Blockbuster. Mm-hmm. I watched the first 20 minutes and I had to turn it off. I said, no, I can't watch it. I took it back. Uh, I watched it later. I end, I have the Mel Brooks collection on, uh-huh. on Blu-ray 
I have that box set of the Mel Brooks collection and I watched it later and I enjoyed it. I liked it a little bit. I liked Robin Hood Men and Tights. I thought it was okay, you know, but it's just not quite Mel Brooks. It's yeah. like he was losing a step. Yeah. And that's he went on. You, and you're going to be upset, but I think that was probably my first introduction to Mel Brooks growing up in the 90s. Really? Um, and I think it, I mean, it's. I watched it not too long ago. I think it was on TV and I caught like the back, you know, two thirds of the movie. Was it, Rob, it was Robin Hood Men and Tights. Yeah, that's how that's okay. Carrie L's All right. It, right? Yeah. Yeah, Carrie Elway's playing Robin yeah. Hood. Um, and again, there were moments of it that I thought were okay when I rewatched it on mm-hmm. Blu-ray, when I got that box set. And I, I think I reviewed it on the blog. I thought it was okay. Yeah. The problem was, I don't know what happened, but Mel Brooks just lost a step. Yeah. He lost his his comedic edge. You look at movies like, you watch Blazing Saddles, you watch The Producers. <laughs> Young yeah. Frankenstein. These movies are still hilarious. Yeah. To this yeah. day, they were made in the, the, the late 60s, early 70s. They're still damn funny. You laugh out loud at these movies. What happened when he got to Robin Hood Men in Tights? Life, was it Life Stinks? I don't even mm-hmm. want to talk about that movie. That was so goddamn depressing. I saw that on cable. I'm like, this is Mel Brooks. Forget it. I, I don't want to forget this movie yeah. ever freaking existed. To the point that I never watched Dracula Dead and Loving It. Oh, no. I never watched it because I'm like, I just don't want that to be the Mel Brooks I remember. Yeah, it's almost like with Robin Hood Men in Tights, you can definitely tell. And like I said, the first time I watched it, I had no idea who Mel Brooks was or anything like this because I would have watched it as a kid. Mm -hmm. But you can you can definitely tell. It fits in more with the comedies of that age. And it's not necessarily some of the smarter comedy stuff. It's kind of. It's, it's just much it more doesn't slapstick work. In places, it doesn't. It's, yeah, it's slapstick. It doesn't work. Yeah. There are moments in that movie that just don't quite reach, you know. But then, but it's so funny because you watch early Mel Brooks and they're still funny. What happened to him in that? And you get that maybe with a a lot of filmmakers. Oh, most of them, I would say. Yeah, where there's something about them where they just hit a point where. You know, Mel Brooks knew what was funny, something that he did in the late 60s and early 70s. We're still laughing at. And later in his career, we're not laughing anymore. We're kind of like, oh, God, what's happening here? Yeah. You know, it started a little bit with Spaceballs. I remember seeing it on the big screen. I laughed out loud at quite a bit of Spaceballs. I Mm -hmm. thought it was a good spoof. Yeah. But yet it still had moments in it that are just like, ah. He's not quite the same Mel Brooks that I remember him being. Yeah, I think that's inevitable. But you've got like and I'd hate to see because I still want more from like Tarantino. But you got to admire. He's like, I want to go out on top. But I agree. And you know what? I agree with him 100 percent. I think it was it was it was when he was on Howard Stern and he was talking about uh, Billy Wilder, how Billy Wilder had an amazing filmography. I mean, you're talking like, you know, Double Indemnity, uh, Stalag 17, Sunset Boulevard. Uh, oh, God, what was that one with? Um, oh, God, the drunk. I can't remember what, what, what the hell it was now. <laughs> Billy Wilder had an amazing filmography through much of the 40s and 50s. When it got later on, where he made like his last three, mo- three movies, The Front Page. I can't remember what the other one was. Then Buddy Buddy, I think, was Billy Wilder's last movie. And as, according to Tarantino, and I agree with him, those movies sucked. They were bad. He lost it. B- 
Billy Wilder had lost his touch late in his career. And that's unfortunately what a generation of filmgoers are going to remember about Billy Wilder. Younger filmmakers, you know, I remember seeing Buddy Buddy on cable when it came out. And that was my exposure to Billy Wilder. That was the first Billy Wilder movie I ever saw was Buddy Buddy. And I remember watching it and saying, yeah, this ain't all that. Who is this Billy Wilder guy? Why should I be admiring him? You know, everyone's talking about how great he is. This is not a good movie. Then you go back and you watch the earlier films that he did, even up to one, two, three in the 60s. Those are great movies. The fortune cookie is hilarious. It's a great, that's the first, I think it might have been the first movie that paired Walter Matthau and Jack Lemmon. Hilarious movie, but he didn't have it at the end. And that's, and I agree with Tarantino. I think that's awesome. If he wants to go out on top, he wants that, he said on that Howard Stern episode, he wants you to be able to lift any film out of his filmography and be able to watch it and say, yes, this is a strong movie. And I don't care what anyone says. I actually really like Death Proof. (laughs) I was going to go there. You know what? I've come around. I, when I watched Grindhouse for the first time, I was very excited. Um, and I did like Planet Terror for all the campiness that mm-hmm. it was. But Death Proof didn't stick with me. But I rewatched it a couple years back. And there's some pretty good scenes there in that is. film. I mean, if we're being honest, I mean, they were going for Grindhouse. They were going for that 70s feel, yeah. right? Tarantino hit it better than than Planet Terror did. And I love Planet Terror. Mm-hmm. I do. I can watch that movie anytime and I enjoy it. I love Planet Terror, but Death Proof was more of a grindhouse style film yep. than than Planet Terror was. Yeah. And say what you want, but I actually think I like the first half of Death Proof better than the second second half. I like all that talking and that um all of the stuff at the beginning. Yeah. And, when, and then Rose um, McGowan kind of Exactly when they're, when they're talking in the beginning, it's great. And then when it gets later on, yeah, it changes a little bit. It changes into you a know, different movie almost. It becomes a different movie. It becomes like almost it really is. It's almost like it changes. Like the first half is a grindhouse movie. The second half is a Tarantino movie. And there's a combination you know, it's a it's I thought it was a nice combination of the two, but I agree with you. I think the first half is stronger. Yeah. With what is it, Jungle Julia? Yep, Jungle Julia, the yeah. radio DJ. Yeah, with the D- yeah, that first part of it, I think, is a stronger film than what happens in the second half. But I love the second half. Yeah, and especially I love that- Kurt Russell's character in that movie because he plays a guy who's this sort of sadistic killer who doesn't like pain. <laughs> no. When he's experiencing pain, he's almost like this little bitch. <laughs> you know, where yeah. you're sort of whining and crying. And it's funny when I rewatched the movie, the scene with the car crash, which for me is the strongest scene in the film. You know, yeah. that that's that car crash with Jungle Julia and her friends as they're going down the road and Kurt Russell's coming the other way. When you watch that again, you hear him sort of when the car's in the air, you hear stuntman Mike. I think it's stuntman Mike. Yeah, stuntman Mike. Whining a little. as the car's in the air and you're like oh it's interesting how he set that up early to make it stronger later on i never noticed that but i didn't until i watched it again you watch it you just hear this little bit of a almost like a wilhelm scream without it being a wilhelm scream from from stuntman mike 
and I I love the way that film ends um, with that song as that chick habit that's playing over top of it. Yes. That song. <laughs> and you've got that's just an incredible scene. Um, it is. I, I do. You know what? I, I, I can watch any Tarantino film. I could pull out like he said, you could pull out any one of his films and watch them. And I can do that with Death Proof. I can do that with any one of his movies. Anytime there's a Tarantino film. And it's funny because I think Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, after a few more rewatches, might be, might break my top three for Tarantino. You know? And and if I were to pick top three, it would be Pulp Fiction. Always going to be my favorite Tarantino film. I love Pulp Fiction. Mm -hmm. Django Unchained. Mm -hmm. And possibly Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I've seen it twice. And the the second time I saw it, I loved it more than the first time. And I loved it the first time. Yeah. And the great thing is, is anyone could have like a different combination for myself. It would be, um, kill bill is one of my favorite. Oh, I, and I, I remember seeing kill bill in the theater mm-hmm. and being so depressed after the first one that I had to wait a year for the yeah. second one to come out. Yeah. But I would say minor, like for right now it's kill bill, Django and glorious bastards. Okay. But, um, I enjoy, I, there's not a one of them. I don't enjoy. No, I'll be honest, prob- I'm a fanboy. I'm a big yeah. fanboy of Quentin Tarantino. Too. I love his stuff. My problem is, is I don't want him to go out on a Star Trek film. No, um, I don't either. I don't want him. I want to kill Bill three. Yeah. Kill Bill three might be interesting. It'd be interesting. But like I said, that's one of my that's probably top 10 of my favorite movies of all time. Oh, wow. And like if you put the two together and I don't want to kill Bill three, really. I mean, I okay. would watch it for sure. But if that's going to be his last film, I don't want that. That's no, I, 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 he was talking about doing an Australian type film. I might want to see that more. Wasn't I just ta- don't know what he's going to do for his last movie. Yeah. Wasn't he talking about doing like a, um, isn't it a remake of like faster pussycat kill kill or something? Oh, he was wow. Doing that would be really cool Yeah. to see, to see Quentin Tarantino. Yeah. That would be pretty cool to see him do a faster pussycat pill. I don't know. There's all this sort of stuff out there of what yeah. Tarantino is going to do. So, Dave, let's uh, got off track a little bit there, but let's bring this back. I told you I was going to go into and do kind of um, I've been doing like at the end of each topic around like a ranking of Mm -hmm. the films I cover. So um, I'm going to do my rank these five films from genre. And you could probably tell a little bit how it's going to go. But I'd put Fascination at five, um, Iron Rose at four, Grapes of Death at three, uh, The Demoniacs at two and then Living Dead Girl at one. But those like I said, Fascination was the only one I still liked a lot of it, but mm-hmm. the other ones I found to be all really solid films. So. I, I, I think all of them. Yeah, I think all of them were were, were solid. Again, um, if, if you look at them as a both art house slash exploitation, I thought all of them had something that reached both of those. Absolutely. You know, that sort of approached both of those. But if I were to pick my top two, I think it would be. Yeah, Grapes of Death and Living Dead Girl would yep. probably be my top two. Yeah, those are good. And like yeah. I said, I appreciate you giving me that final push on that episode we recorded because I didn't know what I was going to do for this European stuff, really. I was kind of flying cool. by the seat of my pants after Barbara Steele. So, um, oh, nice. That gave me a push. And like I said, I picked up The Living Dead Girl, The Demoniacs, and Grapes of Death from Redemption. Um, did not get The Iron Rose because it wasn't quite on sale um, as much as I wanted it to be. But... I have I have that I think I have all of the genre land from Redemption the Blu-rays and Iron Rose is one of them I think I have all of them but I picked them up years ago yeah when they were first released and unfortunately a lot of these things go out of print and they do 
Yeah. And like we were talking about earlier, when you're buying stuff from like Mondo Macabre and that kind of stuff, sometimes those things pretty much keep their same value just because they're hard to find. Right. Um, And Redemption, I think, is one of those labels that, yeah, it's under Kino Lorber, but I feel like you don't hear about too many films on Redemption. No, you don't. And unfortunately, even with Mondo Macabre, like, was it the uh, Bollywood horror? I have volume two and volume three. Can't find volume volume one is like eluded me. Unfortunately, yeah. because now it's just out of print and it's so expensive. Yeah. Fortunately, I was I was lucky enough to pick up two and three. But yeah, you're right. And then it's it's just something where it's a shame because these things come out and then they just go out of print so quickly. They do. And last tangent, last little tangent for the night. I know um, there's a couple of films that just never really you see all these good releases and I'm sure some things are going to come up eventually. But one thing like Cemetery Man, I had a hard time finding a DVD. I, I am to- so lucky. I picked up a DVD of that, I'm thinking maybe 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. I found a DVD. I got it for maybe about $10. (sighs) And I have it in my collection. And it's like, you're right. That is now rare. It's hard to find Cemetery Man. All of Michele Suave's films, except for um, Stage Fright, are Mm -hmm. hard to find. Um, right. I had to buy like it almost looked like a it was a blue underground version, I think, of the sect or the devil's daughter, um, the church. I had to like search around for it. But right. there's a lot of those films where they're just hard to find. And I, we're talking like hundreds of dollars for Cemetery Man. I found a used copy on eBay for like 30 something. And I was I like, see, that's, and you know what? Even at that, it's worth it because it's a great movie. Cemetery is a, Man is an amazing film. But I was lucky enough to get it back in the day. Like it's it's um there was a um a DVD set of three films that came out of Sonny Chiba. It was called the Sonny oh, Chiba yeah. Collection. I think it was Golgo, was it Golgo thirteen, mm-hmm. um Virus and oh god, what was that one with the train? I can't remember the title of it now. But I bought that when it first came out. I got it for like maybe nineteen ninety five. It's out of print. Like you yep. can't even find that anymore. Yep. And, you know, it's it's like it's great that I got it. I feel, wow, I got it. And I got, you know, I got it at a good price and I have it as part of my collection and everything. But by the same token, you talk those movies. It's hard for other people to find them. Yep, absolutely. And you run into and I don't I don't mind. I'm still going to talk about a lot of these films um, if I can find them myself. But I have a hard time mm-hmm. finding some films to watch, too. But, you know, it just kind of and I love the work. My tip of tip of the cat here to um, like Vinegar Syndrome and Severin and Synapse. And there's so many great labels out there putting out genre films. But when I have to see Scream Factor, I'm one there's I've got this long list of films that I would like for a copy to be made of, let alone like the stuff on that's trapped on like Netflix and Mm -hmm. things. But then you see Arrow or not Arrow. I think it was Scream Factory putting out like a fifth different release of prince of darkness and i'm like guys don't we have a better use of our time yeah exactly there's been plenty of uh prince of darkness yeah uh out there which is a great movie it's one of my uh, you know when when you talk about carpenter i actually ranked that right up there with like the thing in halloween i think prince of darkness Darkness. is a masterpiece yeah i do too i love i've come around to it more and more the more i've watched it um yeah it's an intelligent horror film it is you know but it's a horror film still Yes, it creeps you out. But by the at the same token, you're watching it and you're like, wow, this is there's some lofty things happening in Prince of Darkness. Yep. Yeah. So that's the only the only thing I love those labels out there. And like I said, I've got my laundry list. If I could go into like Justin Beam or something and just say, hey, go get this, (laughs) 
Please. Oh yeah, we, we've been pushing him for what was that elf? <laughs> <laughs> Which is let's be honest, it's a crappy movie, yeah. but it's fun. Yeah. Uh, the one with um, what was it Dan Haggerty from uh from uh oh god that show I used to love as a kid, Grizzly Adams. Oh yeah. I'd watch him every week as Grizzly Adams. I remember being, as as a kid, I you, know, I you know my mother would say, "Hey, Grizzly Adams is coming on," and I'd have to go in and watch it. Um, but you know, I we're trying to push him to get Elf. <laughs> well, you know, speaking of fun, they're putting out Alligator here soon. Oh uh, yes, I saw that, and you know what? I still have it on DVD. I got it years ago. Yeah, I always promise. <laughs> it's fine. I made a vow to my wife that I'm not always going to upgrade. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I have to. You know what? I just had sent a bunch because I had upgraded to some Blu-rays um, and I was I think I reached out to Jackson and Rawlings and I was like, hey, mm-hmm. you want some old DVDs? And I'm yeah. talking about like I think I sent him like a Nightmare on Elm Street. It's one oh, of the nice. original I, like DVD cases. you know, the snap ones, the like, cardboard. with. The yes, snap. exactly. Yeah, I I sent Jackson a whole bunch of um, DVDs. Uh, part, some of them were my Bergman from Criterion oh, really? because I got the box the set. Oh yeah. yeah I, got, I got that box set. My, my parents had uh, purchased that for me um, right around the time I had my operation uh, to watch during my recovery. I got the, the Ingmar Bergman box set of Blu-rays. So I sent Jackson a lot of the DVDs that I had. Um, I want to say, Oh God, what was it? Um, you know, maybe scenes from a marriage and, was it persona? I don't know if I sent a persona, but uh, Seven Seal, uh, a lot of those films that I had, I sent to Jackson as well. That's so that's funny. really cool. That's funny to hear that I'm not the only one that thought of Jackson. No, no, like, you're not. Absolutely. I sent him a whole bunch as well um, that I, I had was... upgraded to Blu-ray. I think Passion of Joan of Arc, you know, the the, the silent film and yeah. things like that. Yeah. I was just like, is anyone at Goodwill going to get appreciation out of my What Have You Done to Solange DVD? Uh, probably not. <laughs> right, and, no. And I, I was most excited. I sent him, um, I upgraded to that new, it was Arrow, I think, that uh, Gamera High Z trilogy of films. Oh, um, nice. That new set. So I had an old yes. Mill Creek Blu-ray that I sent him. And I'm really excited if he checks those out. Um, so oh, Jack, yeah, if you're listening, definitely. I'm really excited for you to watch those since you're a big Godzilla fan. But Yes, he was on our um, Land of the Creeps Godzilla episode. Yeah, if I'm not mistaken, he is a big fan of those films. So, yeah, that would be awesome for him to check out. Definitely. Yeah, Uh, I saw like Ian Urza's getting into the Godzilla stuff for the first time. He's watching a ton. Yes. Every day I I log on and it says like there's three different Godzilla movies, one from like 10 hours ago, one from six hours ago, one from two hours ago that Ian Urza is watching all of these Godzilla movies. And that's awesome. You know, I think that Criterion Collection. If if I were to have like two box sets at the top of my like must have list, mm-hmm. that Criterion Collection Godzilla would be number one, and the new folk horror that came out. Oh, I'm not sure the label. I know. I want it. That was on Severin. Um, and I want Severin. To, yes. I want to see and so many of those films because they I own had, two had good of them. Releases. I own two of them. I own V V I uh, V I Y uh-huh. on yeah, Blu-ray, and I have Anchorus on DVD. Okay, yeah, that's from like the 90s, right? But it's it is, yes, that one's from the 90s. And I reviewed Anchorus on the blog. V, I have not yet reviewed. I intend to at some point in the near future. But there's so many interesting movies mm-hmm. in that you, collection. And Nathan Bartleball of Phantom he Galaxy. He got it, yeah. He got it. And he's talked to me about it. And he said, you know, hey, this is really amazing. I mean, it's 200, it's over $200. 
It is, and the Godzilla one's expensive, too. And the Godzilla one is in the $100, yeah. you know, and you're kind of like, eh. But you know what, you know, David? maybe if somebody, maybe if, a, if, if, is there a millionaire out there who'll send, yeah. send me some money that I can pick up these things, you know? Well, they just, um, they just released a lot of those folk horror films on Shudder. I think it was this week. Did they? That were in that collection, yeah, because oh, I think wow. a lot of those releasing deals have deals with Shudder where they release I mean, their new the releases two- on it. The two I've seen, V and Anchorus, I strongly recommend. I and mean, I, Anchorus is an amazing – it's an homage to Passion of Joan of Arc. You know, mm-hmm. Dreyer's Passion of Joan of Arc. It sort of uh, borrows a lot from that. It's a very fascinating film about a true story about a girl. You know, it's in the 13th century in England who walls, her, walls herself up in a church because she got a calling. She got, a you know, a higher calling. And then comes to regret her decision. But because of the time period, she has to spend the rest of her life, supposedly, in this chapel, walled up in this chapel. Okay. It's a great movie. And V is a, just an interesting uh, Russian film. Yep. You know? I've, yep. I've seen V. I have not seen Anchorus, but it was on my list for a while. Yeah, I, I would recommend seeing Anchorus. I, I, I would. I think it's a great movie. Yep. V, though, Anchorus, I didn't really look at as horror. Mm-hmm. You know, it's more of a sort of historical drama, I think, than anything. Uh, v approaches horror, though. Yes. You know, yep. that is that is more of a horror film. I think. Yep. Yeah. And I can recommend one on the fat set, too, is Robin Redbreast. It was, I think, a TV play in the BBC, but a very good. Um, I'd like to see that remade today with a little bit more budget put into it and like a theatrical oh, nice. release. But Robin Redbreast from 1970 is a really good one as well. That's I you know I haven't seen that. So now I'm I'm intrigued. I definitely yep. want to see that. Yep. And then last thing before we wrap up here, Dave, I was gonna say I think I pulled a I pulled a U for the first time, and I at Black Friday I bought Tenant on 4K, and I'm going oh. and I'm and I'm rearranging. I'm putting my um and I put that away. I think guess I got it for like under ten bucks, and mm-hmm. I'm I get some more movies in, and I'm going to put them in there, and I look at the shelf, and I'm like. I've got Tenant on Blu-ray and Tenant on 4K. And that's within the same year. That was probably within like five, six months of each other buying oh, them. Wow. There's no excuse for that. Like, you know what? I And I can't judge you, sir, because I've done that so many times myself. I am going to, you know, my goal is to pick up 4K mm-hmm. going forward for new releases. Yeah, I got a bunch cheap. Um, I know I got A Quiet Place 2 on 4K. I got that naughty cut of Krampus. Um Ah, see, that's the one I want to pick. I I have that on pre. I have it on. I have the Krampus one on order, but it's not going to be released. I think Amazon's quoting like beginning of March. Yeah. Before they're going to send that to me, but I don't care. I have it in there. I have my order in, and I really want to pick out that uh, that naughty edit, that naughty cut of Krampus. Doesn't add a lot. I've only seen Krampus once before, so I couldn't tell what they added, but. Mm. I mean, it's good to have it on 4K. I've just suffered yeah, for that. Yeah, and so. that's what I have it. That's what I have the purchase in. Like today, I just picked up Halloween Kills uh, and Dune. Saw that. Yeah, the newest Dune movie I picked up, but it was on Blu-ray because I walked into Best Buy, and there was one copy of each of those left, and both were on Blu-ray. I yeah. would have picked up the 4K if had they been available. Yep. But they were not. Apparently, they. That was a debacle with Dune because there were a lot of those steel books that were shipping without discs. There were supply issues, like they did not buy enough of the copies of Dune. Um, kind of like what you were saying, there were only there's only one copy left. Right. So I think that was a whole debacle oh, that wow. went on with Best Buy. 
So I'm I'm looking forward to seeing that. I remember my brother saw the original Dune, David Lynch, in the theater. And we were we were even talking about it recently, and my brother's like, "Oh my God, that was awful." But he didn't know anything about the backstory mm-hmm. or the mythology of it. And I'm looking forward to seeing the new Dune. It's really good. Um, it's uh, it sucks that it's on a cliffhanger, but because okay, yeah. they are doing part two. Okay. But it's a really good film, and there's Dil- uh, Dennis Villain Villain of I can't. Can't <laughs> I know who you mean. I know exactly who you mean, though. <laughs> but anyway, he always does such a good job with um, visuals and especially yeah. like Blade Runner um, 2049. And now, did the movie make enough money to warrant a second? It chapter? did. They've already greenlit it. Oh, good. OK, good. Because that's what I you know, because so many times, you know, they'll, they'll leave something on a cliffhanger mm-hmm. and then it doesn't go anywhere. I, I guess it's more with TV. I remember yeah. watching what was it? Carnival on HBO. They did two seasons of that show and it ended at a point in the second season where I'm like, oh, my God, I can't wait to see where it goes. And they canceled the goddamn thing. Yeah, that's why I stopped watching TV. It's like I'd watch. Uh, it's so something. depressing. It happened several times with me. I, it happened with the Sarah Connor Chronicles from Terminator. It happened with Carnival. It happened with uh, Deadwood mm-hmm. where they canceled them too soon. And you're like, you know what? Fuck this. Pardon my French, but fuck this because this is bullshit. And now I'm just left hanging. Yep. So one story about that, there was this show called Happy Town on ABC when I was in college. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of this like mystery. I can't remember who was in it, but it was like this mystery series. And I think it was supposed to run for like 10 episodes and only eight of them aired on TV. Mm -hmm. And then like two months later, they put the other two out online because they had canceled it already. And I was like, I got into like the mystery of it. And then it was like, that's it. That's so depressing. That's the thing about episodic television that just drives me crazy. You know, and it's funny because what was it? They they canceled these shows. They canceled Sarah Connor Connor Chronicles. Oh, God, there was another show. I can't remember. It was on network TV that dealt with like um, a nuclear detonation in a city. I can't remember what the name of this. Was it Jericho? Jericho. Yes, it was Jericho. And they canceled that early. And the 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 producers of it come out and say oh we're going to make a feature film to wrap everything up that's just that was just them buying time for people you know to say oh good we're going to get a feature film to wrap up jericho we're going to get a feature film to wrap up uh wrap up the sarah connor uh chronicles it never happened yeah it was it just them firefly. they throw With that serenity. out there firefly that's another yep. one now they did make a feature film yes serenity it wasn't that. as good yeah, as serenity. the series but... no it was the series was much better than serenity no doubt but they they say oh we're going to make a feature film and they never do that's just something to buy them time without the fan you know the fanboys you know flaming them throwing them tons of messages saying, how dare you cancel this? They say, oh, we're going to make a feature film to wrap it up. And the fanboy goes, oh, okay, good. We'll wait for the feature film. And six months later, it never happens. And they just figure everyone's going to forget about it. And unfortunately, they're right. Yep. And even when it does happen, like with um, Fire Walk With Me, it's not always a great... um, No, it's not. It's it's never as good as the series you're watching. You know, and both... Dead, um, both um, Carnival, I mean, Deadwood was a great series. That's probably my all-time favorite series, mm-hmm. you know, with Boardwalk Empire, close second. But Carnival and the Sarah Connor Chronicles both ended at the best, you know, they the next point, you know, it's like amazing. 
the last episode of both of those are amazing. And you're like, I can't wait to see where it's going to go. <laughs> and it never went anywhere. Yeah, that. Yeah. Nope. I'm with you, Dave. Oh, it, it does. It just depresses you the shit. Out, and you're like, you know what? Give me movies every time. Yeah, that's why when we're talking television, everyone told, oh, did you see this series? Did you see this no, series? I don't watch it. No, <laughs> I didn't see that series. I didn't see this one because I've been burned so many goddamn times. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't even watch like Midnight Mass or anything because I I want to. It's always on my list. And I'm just like, I do no, too. I I'm do just going to watch another 10 Giallos or something. Yeah, like, I want to watch them. I do. I want to watch these movies, but I've been burned so many times. Yep. With these series that I'm just like, no, I'm not going to be burned again. I'm yep. just I'm going to watch movies. I'm going to watch something in a more compact, you know, time uh, time frame. I'm going to watch these hour 45, hour 30, whatever they are, movies and just deal with them uh, as opposed to investing my time in a series that's just going to be canceled and go yep. nowhere. Absolutely. But... With the exception of Mad Men and Boardwalk Empire. Both of them, I think, are masterful and lost. I really like Lost, too. Mm -hmm. I did. It's a guilty pleasure. Even though the last <laughs> season was a little bit of a letdown, um, I was laid off and I ended up buying just seasons of uh, like season one, season two of Lost. And I would sit there with my wife and we would watch Lost and we would watch nine episodes in a day. Oh, man. <laughs> now, my wife is like, play for the next one. Play the next one. Play the next one. You know, we yeah. watched nine episodes of Lost to the point that we caught completely up. It was still on network TV when we mm -hmm. were watching it. You know, we got to it. And I said to my wife, OK, well, we've caught up now. So if you want to watch it on network TV, she's like, no, screw that. No, let's wait. <laughs> let's wait until it comes out on DVD and then we'll watch all of them in a day and a half. And that's, um, yeah. it ended up being what we did for yep. Lost. All right, Dave, let's. Let's get in to wrap this thing up. Um, yeah, let's. Well, genre land. That's what we were talking about. Genre right? land. That's it. Very, <laughs> uh, I think I've aged a year during this episode. I know. Right? <laughs> um, we okay. made it a long way. We a did. long way before we got off track. We did. I'm proud of us. Um, <laughs> uh, so, all right. So, I've covered so far. Unfortunately, this Rise of Euro Horror topic is coming to an end. I've covered so far topics from Italy with Barbara Steele, uh, the UK with Hammer Overview, and now France with the films of Genre Lynn. To end this uh, chapter for now, um, I will come back to European horror. This is certainly not the last time I'll be touching on it. But to end it for now, I'm going to be touching on Spanish films. Essentially, like from early Spanish, the history of Spanish films, um, it's going to be kind of a two-part episode. Um, I'll be going into the early Spanish history from like the early days through Franco um, and a little bit after, and as well as how horror emerged and what kind of horror was going on there. In the second half of that episode, I'm going to be focusing on a large number of deeper cuts from the country. So Dave and I, I think, talked about on our overview several um, Spanish films. I probably won't be even talking about those ones. I'm trying to go a little bit deeper than that even. Um, oh, wow. so right now I'm looking at many reviews. I think I've watched about 12 in the last week or so. I'm looking to get oh, around wow. 15 or 20 to talk about, just do many reviews on the episode to try to get these lesser known films out there. Um, because it is a, it's not that deep. It's not as deep as Italy, but there are some good things down in the dregs of Spanish horror, but mm -hmm. there's a lot of bad things and I've kind of sat through both of them. So, mm -hmm. uh, but that, that'll cover from anywhere from the 60s, 70s and 80s mostly. But, awesome. um, but Dave, I appreciate you coming on, yes, especially because it wasn't really planned. You kind of we just kind of decided 
you know, it'd be fun to. Yeah, I saw, I saw you episode. post something on Twitter that you were looking at doing a genre land. And I say, hey, I would. You know what? I'm a big fan of him. So uh, <laughs> thank you for having me on. It was uh, it was a pleasure, sir. Absolutely. It's always fun to talk to you. Do you want to give out um, your plugs for your endless amounts of podcasts that you're on and everything Ab- else? Absolutely. I have my blog at DVDinfatuation.com. I'm still posting uh, reviews over there. And I'm on Twitter at DVD Infatuation. I have a Facebook. I'm on uh, Instagram. I have my YouTube channel as well. As far as other podcasts, uh, The Illustrated Fan with uh, Nathan Bartleball, part of his Phantom Galaxy podcast, where we look at animated films. Uh, You could check that out. We have, of course, uh, Land of the Creeps. With my brothers from another mother, both Greg and Bill, I really do look forward. Every time we record, it's just a fun, it's fun. Whenever I record with Bill and Greg, uh, and our newest episode we got coming up is our top 10 of 2021. Mm-hmm. Looking forward you know, to that. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to it as well, because I like hearing what the other hosts come up with as mm-hmm. far as their top 10 uh, lists. And I am on uh, the horror movie podcast with Wolfman Josh. And our newest venture just released at the beginning of January 2022 is Jay of the Dead's new horror movies. Mm-hmm. Where um, Jay, Gilman, Joel, uh, Mr. Watson, Dr. Walking Dead and myself talk new horror films. We talk old horror films. We talk a lot uh, it's really interesting because I've mentioned this on other podcasts is that I'm only part of like 40 percent of the recording <laughs> of that episode. So when I go back and listen, I get to sort of experience the other 60 percent of that episode as a listener because I'm just I don't know what's coming. You know, I only know the the section that I was part of. Um, so that's a lot of fun. And I'm looking forward to that uh, going forward. Uh, we recorded episode two already which I think Jay is working on and you know, the plans are to record it bi-weekly. So that's Jay of the dead's new horror movies. Uh, so check it out if you can, uh, as well as my other podcasts that I, uh, Oh God, I didn't even mention DVD infatuation. I have my <laughs> own podcast, uh, that's over on considering the cinema, considering the cinema.com hosted by Jay of, uh, Jason piles, AKA Jay of the dead, where it's just me being solo. You know, it's and and hosting the podcast, which is something mm-hmm. I'm not necessarily used to, but I'm finding it a very rewarding experience. So, yeah, that's uh, the DVD Infatuation podcast hosted over on ConsideringTheCinema.com. Awesome. Please go out there if you I'm sure you have already if you're listening to this, but check Dave out if you haven't, because um, you put a lot of good stuff out there. And okay. once again, just always, always great talking to you. I've enjoyed the couple of longer talks we've had here, Dave. I, I, I have two. I have two. And, you know, like I said, we made it, what, about 80 percent through <laughs> yeah, staying on topic our, until we finally just did. in the middle of a review. We took <laughs> right. a left turn. <laughs> uh, that's OK. That's OK. I'm sure people love it. If not. Oh, well, we'll get them in the next one. Right. Um, <laughs> but uh, uh, just the show you can find over at uh, Twitter at Screaming Ages. And you can 
send an email if you are so inclined to screaming through the ages at yahoo.com. Um, I also have a website screaming through the ages.com that hosts the website or that hosts the podcast. Um, and if you don't mind, if you really enjoy the show, please uh, rate and review on your favorite podcast service and tell your friends if you're enjoying it and spread the word um, and help get the history of horror out there. Cause I got big plans for 2022. We'll see how many of those come to fruition, but hopefully get into some some fun stuff this year. So other than that, appreciate you listening and keep your eyes on your favorite podcast feed for your next bi-weekly horror movie history lesson. <laughs>